0: Hi friends, welcome to an episode of ClapperCast. Um, as the host of ClapperCast, I wanted to come on here really quickly and give um, a, a few words towards the current strikes happening, um, specifically with the WGA and SAG. Um, these are very important strikes that I just want to give voice to that ClapperCast 100% supports. Um, we absolutely stand with both the writers and the actors. Um, obviously, the thesis of this show, we would not be doing this show if we didn't love films. Um, and I think probably if you're watching this, you also love film to at least some degree. And I think it's really important to note that these creations, these films, these pieces of art, that mean so much. I mean, not just do they bring great enjoyment, but they can be incredibly liberating experience. They can be very important. You know, I think of so many films that have touched me at certain points in my life and really changed my life and helped me get through rough scenarios. These are perspectives that can only be told with writers and with actors without them there's nothing and i think it's very very important that we give light to the fact that these strikes are not happening because people want to be rich or because people want to you know be famous or anything like that we need people to just be able to live right i don't feel like it's a crazy concept to say people should be paid enough just to live life And the honest truth is that a lot of writers and a lot of actors currently do not make that money. Uh, Residuals are not what they want. Um, This has been something that's happened before whenever there's a new wave of media, right? Media changes, Hollywood changes, the world changes, society changes. This is something that's happened before um, and with the rise of streaming the world the landscape of media has changed and these demands are just asking that that gets fairly met to where these people who are creating these beautiful pieces of artwork can just simply exist and live um, so i just want to give full voice that we absolutely support these strikes i highly encourage everyone to go look at what's actually happening um use media literacy it's been very strange recently how certain um publications certain people have been misquoted or using misquotes um to possibly spread narratives you do your best to look for the truth um and i just hope that everyone can get through the strike um and i give my full support because again i love film and without these groups without these people without these souls and their voices and their talents there is no film and I think that's just something to really important to keep in mind. Um, so I just want to give that word personally before we get into the episode. So now let's go to the Barbenheimer episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to ClapperCast. I'm your host as always, Carson Tamar, with a very big episode. I think our biggest episode we've had in years. Um Let's first just introduce who's here. First, I will just say he's in the call as, quote, Nolan Fanboy, uh, Mr. Editor-in-Chief Jack Luke Sharp, but also joining the podcast today, Jacob Allen, Max Vincent. Uh, and today, it's our Barbenheimer episode. Guys, we made it after years of waiting, years of, of threatening delays, of threatening to move Oppenheimer. We've made it to the double feature, and I'm very excited to start with Greta Gerwig's Barbie. So let's get right into it. Let's take a look at Barbie and then we'll come back and discuss. Hey, Barbie.
1: Can I come to your house tonight?
2: Sure. I don't have anything big planned. Just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the light. best day ever it is the best day ever so is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now till forever dance, Do you guys ever think dance. about dying
0: okay so i'm gonna start out because i'm just gonna be honest i've been really excited for this film um it, it, i think you know a film is special to me when on clapper cast at least since i've been running it we had a segment where we looked at the stills from when they were shooting i think it's only happened for like two to three films house of gucci included of course um but one of those films absolutely was barbie greta Gerwig's third feature uh solo directorial effort at least um, we previewed this on the Patreon if you want to check it out. We reviewed Lady Bird, me and Morgan did, in a very, very good episode. Um, but Barbie, very curious what this was going to look like. Greta's next step up in this goal of becoming one of the biggest female directors as far as making big mainstream um, films. And I will say, personally, I think she knocked it out of the park. Um, I know we have a little bit of different opinions here, but I mean, and take this with the Carson bias, right? If Mamma Mia 3 drops tomorrow... I'll tell you I'm giving it five stars, let's be clear. Um, But I think Greta Gerwig continues what I'll start with, is just how bold she is as a filmmaker. And this in some ways, a lot of differences, not to trigger Jack here. This reminds me a lot of the new Matrix film in some ways, where you have this director who gets this chance, and obviously the Wachowski's more established, um, but she gets this chance to make this film, and she takes this route that is so poignant and it's so venomous at times towards its own creators towards Mattel towards Warner Brothers the Zack Zack Snyder Justice League joke here I think is incredible but I cannot believe they put it in it's almost like they're asking for a war which I mean I'll support Um, those shout out Zack Snyder Justice League people for, for supporting me hating the flash I'll say you all were there for me for that thank you um still not a good HBO special though um but I really love Barbie. I think obviously the color is great, the production design is fun. Um, but the story itself, it goes back and forth from being this almost like childish, um, you know, simpler story, simpler adventure, to this deeper, like look at what it means to be a woman in the modern world. And obviously a perspective, I want to be clear. We're somewhat limited on this podcast to talk about today. Um, but definitely something that I appreciated and for me, it gave Greta her third five star masterpiece in a row. In my opinion, it's the worst Greta Gerwig film, but I certainly enjoyed it. Um, so I would love to hear what the podcast thinks of Barbie. Yeah. So
1: I going into Barbie, I wasn't like that excited about it until they started to reveal who was in it. Ryan Gosling would play Ken, and then there would be like a bunch of Barbies: Emma Mackey, uh, Issa Rae, uh, Jesus, who who else is in it? Alexander Shipp. Uh, Dua Lipa, Kate McKinnon, Michael Sarah, Simu Liu, Kingsley Benadir, um, Jesus, uh, the Doctor Who, I, don't, I, forget, I forget the guy's name, who else plays, uh, the guy that, that plays Doctor Who, anyways, uh, so many people, like, every, everybody's either in this film, or <laughs> they're in Oppenheimer, uh, and I really love this movie, I absolutely love this movie, like, every single second of this film, was a terrific time. When it started, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to vibe with this very much because it it very much sort of, I I guess, embraces the plastic um, sort of world of of Barbie Land where, you know, Ryan Gosling, he he tries to surf a wave and it doesn't work. (laughs) But like immediately from that moment on, um, I I had a great time with it. I I love the humor. I loved how mature it was because I didn't know if it was going to be a full-on, you know, family-friendly affair or a more adult, older version type of Barbie movie. I mean, there were kids in, when I went to see the movie, there were kids. Uh, and um, some of the kids left with their parents because they realized that it was not for children. <laughs> and that's probably why I love this movie so much. If it wasn't a, a Barbie movie just made for small children, because there's, there's like 40 some odd Barbie movies, um, animated movies, whatever. Uh, they're all made for toddlers. But um, if, uh, I don't know if I would have liked it, but because it's a film that pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable as a PG-13 family uh, comedy, um, I loved it. I I absolutely loved it. I was surprised at some of the jokes too, the self-aware nature of, you know, they're talking about um, aging or whatever. And they're addressing, you know, that Margot Robbie is not necessarily the perfect person to talk about this uh and i yeah i really like this movie had a great time with it i i have like there there are no there are no specific flaws that i have with with barbie i mean maybe the story is a bit predictable but did it really matter no it was it was great to go to a theater uh to see the film with a sold out crowd holy shit every time i go see a film with a sold out crowd it's awesome people clapped during the movie and at the end of the movie uh it it was great that um we had this sort of unifying experience at the the movies margot robbie was great uh ryan gosling incredible probably the best performance of his career i'm not even gonna this is a controversial statement but this is the best thing he's ever done as ken and and margot robbie same thing i mean margot robbie it feels like it was the role she was born to play like from 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 her beginnings to right now it feels like it was the, the role she was born to play Anyways, that's how I feel about Barbie. I think it's great that uh, we have such an audacious piece of work from uh, Greta Gerwig when so many blockbusters
2: made nowadays suck. (laughs) The Flash. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Excellent. All right, I'll go because I have a sort of a a differing opinion of Max and Carson. So I just want to preface this as well because there's a lot of people online who perhaps may may look into these. I I give this film a strong three-star. I don't think this. I don't have anything wrong with the content or the context of this feature whatsoever. If anyone, on if you see on the Twitter, there's a lot of people like Ben Shapiro seem to have a a very differing opinion to a, to a lot of other people who might dislike this. I don't dislike this feature at all. I think the only way I could open my my review on Letterbox is similar to what Carson said is that, pardon the pun, but this film is balls. for a third big film, essentially doing. An independent feature, then starting to do a, pro- a passion project with a sophomore, to go for the big one and do the uh, basically the, the blockbuster debut. To do this, I, I think is is is, is more powered to um, Greta Gerwig. The problem here is that it's it's just under two hours, and there's about three hours worth of film here. It's a constant issue of narrative development. It's like a Russian doll. You open it up and it's more. You open it up, it's more. You open it up and it's more. I think the first half an hour of this feature is it is really, really, really good. It's engrossing, it's engaging, it's fun, it's dynamic, the set design's perfect, the production design is perfect. Then they get into the real world, and the film just sort of opens up itself again. You think, okay, interesting, we're going to get a second wind. And then it has another second wind, and then it has another second wind, and then it has another second wind, and then it has another second wind. And before you get to the end, for me it's just it's um it's a beast of a feature and I can't tell if that's because there's only really one chance to nail this film or it's Noah Baumbach in the side as a co-writer just pumping in, pumping in, pumping in. And I think it's interesting what you mentioned earlier, Carson, and I know you, you specified this has to be under two and a half hours, so I'm gonna do my best here. With the Matrix Resurrections. And I think the big difference about those two films and it attacks very similar ideologies. Not attacks, but let's say analyses and, and debates internally is that A Matrix Resurrections is two and a half hours long by two people, essentially one person with Tom Tiker and, and Craig Mitchell as well, David Mitchell, should I say, who are analysing a film that is self referential within the context of it, but also subtextually to how the film's being made. This feels quite murky in the fact that it's analysing Mattel by also sort of producing itself as a as a product i don't know if those two things can coexist although the film sort of <laughs> proves that it does for me it's just too long It's not long enough should i say but even then at two hours it, there's just so much to grapple here there's so much to discuss of how this could have been majestic and i think the last 10 minutes or 20 minutes i was like this is on the cusp of being great and it to me it just falls a little flat um I do agree with Max, and I would say I think Ryan Gosling's like a career high here. He's perfection. Um, he's, he's terrific. As is most of the cast, if not bloated. Like Michael Sarah's in this. Um, America Ferrera's in this. You could like it's like everybody who's not in this is in Tenet. Uh, sorry, Tenet. We'll get to that. Who's <laughs> in Oppenheimer? Sorry, it just feels really overstuffed, okay. and I don't. I, yeah, I, I can't quite tell what what the difference is, but. Um, I'm sort of like middle of the road here. I don't know if, if anyone else would be able to convince me that this is truly a masterpiece. But it's interesting that Max said very quickly about being in a packed cinema. Mine wasn't, but mine was full of children. Not necessarily full, but like quite a few eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and I was in the back, in like lurking in the back. And um, this is a tough film for an eight-year-old to go watch. And I think that th- this film is quite broad in its subject matter, engrossing, but very broad. If I took my nine-year-old daughter, Jakob Flash would be a a perfect person to answer this, but I don't know how they would perceive this feature, if that would go over their head or not. So there's a lot here to discuss. And I think the the only best thing I can say about this so far is that this will evolve and grow into something quite special as the years go on. But at the moment, I'm really unsure about it.
3: Yeah, I kind of feel... Almost, probably more with Jack Luke on that. There there are some kids in my theaters. Actually, one, like Max said, we had a mom and a child walk out of the theater, but probably 20 minutes left in the movie. They walked out the emergency exit. And you ah. could see everyone go, where's the fire alarm? And luckily, it did not go off, which is maybe a different problem. Um, I brought my Superior, Superior poster for Barbie Pink today. So got pulled that out. Need some Barbie Pink um i completely agree that the first 25 30 minutes barbie world kind of this corporate expressionism right it's not completely you know you've got this great set pieces the barbie world it felt like playing with a barbie um stuff like that and i I just thought that is the best you get maybe like the three main songs from the soundtrack, which I just thought they knocked out of the park, the soundtrack. It, it's interesting, too, with the soundtrack, two movies that have kind of done that now, brought in old music and new artists. Elvis, Baz Lerman did that with Elvis as well, and that, that soundtrack just took off. So I really think that that is a perfect way to get into the zeitgeist and stuff like that. So I think Greta really has her finger on the pulse here of what people would want. I do also think um, once we get to the real world, it's right. It's Barbie world. Here's the matriarchy that it's, it's this fun. It's this inverse. Oh, we made the world perfect. And then, okay, now we go to the weird world where we get the Mattel, we get Will Ferrell. And that's when it did start to lose me. I did feel as if the corporate side of Mattel was the most undercooked um, especially once you get to the third act, you go, okay, the Kens really get their arc and the Barbies get their arc, but there's this middle ground of Mattel that maybe if they were going to do what they did. Um, but I kind of, some scenes, not no spoilers, but I would kind of feel like is almost Barbie in its flow state of, um, the opening dance or the dance number, uh, the traveling through the world, the mal, uh, the beach scenes, these feel like kind of the play artificial Barbie and just that fun of the world and the sparkling they put around it. And that's, that's when I was very invested kind of out of my seat at some points. It's funny. You don't think that you would ever go, you know, out of your seat in Barbie, but there's a point where I kind of sat up. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fun. Um, I'll agree. I think Ryan Gosling is great. I don't, um i mean he he kind of margo is amazing but i almost think ken right? he gets the fun scenes in the real world where she's got to deal with this kind of difficult stuff so it, it is easy to walk away going oh ryan gosling's great and i'm so happy for these two right because um what have they been known as these two cannot open a box office right babylon amsterdam oh they're bombs and it's her fault which is like how how is that her fault um and then also You've got Ryan Gosling, things like First Man. Uh, I mean, La La Land does really well. And even Netflix's Gray Man was watched a lot. So I think like he is known by the public, but his other stuff in box office hasn't. And then these two opening it. I do wonder, though, with the kids, I thought it was going to be a little more mature, more adult. I think they did do a good job of getting two, maybe, um, I wouldn't say inappropriate, but just too much into like oh that's really crass or something like that didn't do too much of that but i do wonder if a lot of moms and daughters young girls are going to see this movie and then they're going to tell their friends they're like don't don't take your daughter to this um who knows though i think it's so fun i just love where we go um i i don't know if it's something i think y'all probably think this will be something that carries on a legacy. I think that Jack Luke did say maybe you only have one chance. I definitely think they're going to get a second chance here. Um, who knows? Right. But a sequel, I mean, with that money, it's, I guess it depends on who would, does Greta want to do it? I, I prefer her little women. Definitely. I, I'm with Carson. I thought that was top tier. Um, but it's, it's so fun. And, yeah, it does make fun of the corporate. They even make fun of themselves a lot, right? They're making fun of Barbie and stuff. It is fun. I've got three sisters, and my sister is next to me. She did not, she did not love Barbie, which is um, funny. Um, but uh, I just um, – we had – I remember we had the – there's this uh, dog Barbie um the dog toy we had that dog barbie toy and i'm like oh i remember this stuff and even because i'm like oh yeah y'all had it and it's just funny seeing all that and i'm sure generations to come probably remember older barbies um and it makes fun of too right the corporate and almost you see the how the cultures changed. depending on what mattel was making the dolls which you see almost all the dolls in this movie um it's like oh yeah this got discontinued and you go oh yeah that makes sense why that would get discontinued or now we have you know, there's hundreds of Barbies now. There's not just one. And that's kind of where we are today. I will say that my last thought with the movie, I thought Margot and Gosling are great. And then from there, the ensemble starts to drop off exponentially at how much screen time each person gets, I felt. I thought Michael Sarah was really good. Um Simu Lee, Um, I might be mispronouncing that. It's been a minute since I've heard his name in real life um but I thought he was so good with Gosling kind of this um you know just this like bro yeah they're just bros (laughs) um and but the Barbies I thought there there was some right we got the president They're they they are kind of the ones that are pushed to the side but they they help round it out so much so I, I I had fun I didn't think it captured me as much i think it gets messy by the end just of there's a lot of work to do at the end a lot of themes that we get to go through um but anytime we're in the barbie world i i I was enjoying it great set design so uh i'll i'll leave it at that i think yeah i mean my theater liked it right
0: (laughs) i'll also throw america farah out there she really impressed me in this as far as talking about Mm -hmm. the ensemble especially she has a monologue in there which comes i'll admit like a little bit out of nowhere and is, like, kind of awkwardly placed but I think, like, when she goes to 10, she's able to get to 10. Um, I completely agree about Gosling and Robbie. I mean, Marco Robbie, putting blinders on to, like, Amsterdam and stuff, um, what a fucking career. I mean, every time I see her on screen, mm-hmm. it's like better and better. I'm like, Oh, I Tanya incredible. And then it's like Babylon. And it's like, oh, amazing. And then like Barbie, she's incredible. I it truly, I think if you think Margot Robbie's not one of our best working actors today, regardless of gender, regardless of any specificities you want to give, like, I think you're crazy. I think she's absolutely one of our finest working actors. Um, I think there's a lot to get into as far as what you guys have talked about. I think the Mattel stuff is interesting because I think that's where a lot of like the comedy, I think that design of Mattel and like they get a call from like the FBI or cops or whoever and it cuts and it just shows shows how lifeless Mattel is. I am curious what the limitations were on that because I agree that is the most like underwritten narrative throughout the film especially will ferrell uh, and his posse of men they're a presence in a lot of the film and, but they don't really get a lot to do until they kind of show up at the end um i am curious what limitations they had on that because you can't really have the narrative be like oh a woman's now ceo because in real life a woman's not ceo um so i i think i have a little bit more grace there just because i think that greta is doing more than she probably should be doing with the limitations put on her. Um, So I respect that. Um, I am curious about Greta's future. I mean, not to like completely devolves this, but like um, I know she's doing her Chronicle of Narnia series for um, Netflix, which I'm interested in. Um, I might want to, I might take a Barbie two over that.
3: Did Um, you see that being delayed and she takes something else first? I almost could. I know she's getting, they said she's going to do it, but it seems like after this, is that what she's going to go into? I
0: don't know. I think think Greta is like. I think the thing with Greta is that she is so inspired from reading all the interviews and everything with her. Like, she wants to be the biggest like female director of all time. And I think she's going to continue to push and just try to do as much as possible. I don't think she wants to get locked into like a series or get locked into a specific vision or a specific identity. I think she wants to be everywhere doing everything and is very ambitious in that
3: sense, which I respect and like. Um, Great adapter too. Right. So yeah. The book. Absolutely. I just hope she doesn't do Chronicles and Arnia and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Give us do a different book. Maybe.
0: Not going to lie, I never read I any actually...
3: of them or saw the movies because I'm gay.
0: But,
2: um,
0: you know, <laughs> well, I yeah, assume I th- Greta will be good at
2: it. <laughs> can, I, can I just, I don't want to be a, a massive downer here, right? Go but, for it. And this is going to sound hyperbolic. But I, I'm really, really worried about this Narnia deal. Because when it first came out, I, saw, I thought it was a joke. I couldn't, I couldn't put her placement as a director at this time and think those two would collide. And then I've watched this, and it's become an enormous success. And not to throw back here into history, but I have, I have massive concerns that this is going to turn into another Michael Ciamino. I think this, this is Greta Gerwig's D-Hunter, and the Narnia film is going to be the, the Heaven's Gate. I have a horrible feeling that it's just going to be... who uh, uh, For an audience, who's bothered about that? Like, what, it, ha, it will have to be done at a minimum of at least maybe 150 or 120, and this is millions, 100 millions of dollars because it just can't captivate an audience. Audience, It's going to come out at the same time that um, HBO Max gear up the Harry Potter reboots. I, 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 whoever's producing this must surely just have yeah. the rights. Yeah, yeah exactly. But th- th- there must be people behind there with, with, a, with stacks of wads of cash in the, in the back pocket, because those things, to me, don't correlate whatsoever. It just feels like a massive cinematic dissonance I, I, we've, I've seen this throughout, the, and and everyone here will have their opinion. Don't get me wrong. I'm just in mine. I just think that this happens quite a lot, and it's it's this for, from Little Women to Barber is a major jump on a cinematic scale, not necessarily with with narrative and not necessarily with thematics, but to jump from that to to work under Netflix and to see that there's only what three directors I think who have gone there who have actually been able to get, captivate a major audience with having a highly critically successful film. I think what I don't necessarily see what what she might be able to achieve there. I hope she goes there. If she does do it, she 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 beats it out of out of hemisphere. But for me, it's imperative that she goes to make a smaller film before that. Go and make another Lady Bird. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And I think that it will bring after the the strike as well. It will bring back down boots on the ground, and maybe maybe just give some more direction because. These jumps are huge, and I just worry that these these Netflix creatives will just fucking shit the bed with it. They really will. I just don't see a future where they're highly successful. Maybe we'll come back to this <laughs> in five years, Carson, and I'll, I'll be made to eat my words. But for me, that that's such a worrying worrying prospect. It's unbelievable. But it's interesting what Jacob said um, about the box office bomb stuff because it's very funny that these two – haven't had that yet. Have their birds of prey didn't do particularly well, but we go back into the the um, DCU issues. Ryan Gosling sort of turned into the next Michael Fassbender, where everybody seems to like him and appreciate him, but he just can't get anything off off the uh, off the table with with lots of money. So, it'd be interesting what these two do next. Uh, that would that would really catapult uh, catapult them into to huge stardom. But they're both very defined in what they can do, especially Robbie with with Harley Quinn. She can't really take on much more. Within, within a, with a franchise, but he's, he's he's fair game. I've got a horrible feeling that he's going to be in the next Fast and Furious as well. I think Keanu Reeves is going to turn it no. down. I think he'll do it. He'll do the Hobson Shaw re, um, thing. Hey, yeah, if I think he, think he does do it the fun,
0: nice guys too, I'll be here for that. I'll just say. Well, we can, got, we, we, got
2: we, got we have hope. Work. There's a
3: Wolfman. He's got a Wolfman movie. Yeah, I think that's dead. Lined up. He's that's got dead. A, the writer of um, The Fall Guy. The it's Martian. Like there's, the he's man? got a ton of things lined up, but what will he actually pick? And then, two, the fact on that we've
0: not heard line. anything about Wolfman, and that was literally our first episode of Clappercast in 2020. We talked yeah. about it. I would say it's probably not it's
3: happening. <laughs> no made two not. films in that time. <laughs> One last thing about yeah. the Netflix thing: Jack Luke um, Bombac probably introduced Netflix in her. I mean, they know her, but he's got he's made two movies now with them. So I wonder if that's where that came out of.
2: I, yeah, movies, I don't, I. Yeah, I, I would, I would probably agree with you, but I think there's also t- Timmy, t- young Timmy Chamelier, with with the King. So there's there's a lot there that, that <laughs> makes sense, but um, who knows? I just I just feel that that, that to me is just one step too, too big. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to come back to this later with because but Carson's with the films we've been watching, but I could really have seen John Waters pick at this and do a really good job. So it's interesting that that Greta Gerwig's taken this and really made it her own as well, because this film. Because I remember when this was meant to be made in was it twenty fifteen with Amy Schumer, which would have been a, a very similar film, but the execution we, we can debate. But um, I think this was this was always geared up to be quite like a self referential, um, you know, the sneaking in itself type type of venture. Um, and I think she does a really good job with it, though. I, I think she'd be pleasantly surprised, and with the the business it's done opening weekend, <sighs> I mean, that's massive. For 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 a female-led film, for a female-led director, uh, for for a, a female-oriented sort of feature, um, again, but it is it is sort of multifaceted in how it sort of dissects itself and looks at uh, you know gender norms and gender dynamics and does does sort of cater towards the the, the toxic masculinity. So there's a lot here to sort of um, to, to to find compelling. I don't think it should be led as a female-led venture because it's not. Um, and I think that's what makes it all the more compelling and I think that's why a lot of people went into this, namely Ben Shapiro didn't, bet- <laughs> didn't perhaps enjoy it thinking it's going to sort of be an indictment of um of the female form, especially with Robert and I'm glad it wasn't that it was a lot more um honest it was a lot more um multifaceted it was a lot more engaging in, in looking at society on on a plane as well so there was a lot there that they could get wrong and they did a really good job of it I think as well.
1: The thing with Gerwig, um, she can do whatever she wants after this. Like, if she wants to do Narnia, she can. Uh, If she has a good vision for the story, I think, you know, just go for it. Like, the Disney versions of Narnia, I'm sorry, they were fine. Not amazing. And the last one was terrible. So if she can, um, Mm -hmm. I guess, do a better better version and a more complete um, version of Narnia, because I think Netflix, they want they want this to be like one of their biggest franchises, like with mm-hmm. Amazon and Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think I, I think I think she's she's a very good fit for that world, and you know uh, she can really balance out. And Barbie, especially, she balance out balances out large scale you know set pieces with more intimate character driven mo- moments, specifically in the end uh, where Barbie um, you know starts to, to to find out more about, about what it is to live. And then there's the, you know, the, the beach off, with uh, the cans. I think, you know, she can really balance out uh, large scale action with the character driven moments. I think, you know, Narnia, she's a perfect fit for that. And if she has the vision, I, I I really don't see why she couldn't do this. If she wants to, you know, I think, I think she said that she wants, she wanted to be like Christopher Nolan, where he makes these sort of big action epics and then the smaller movies like, you know, Tenet, Insomnia, I guess.
2: Uh, who do, do you I mean, see it? Max, do you see a cinematic correlation between anything you've seen before, especially Barbie, and what you could see in Narnia? Do you think?
1: I, I don't know, but I think I'm, I'm interested in, in seeing Greta Gerwig flex her her genre muscles. You know, she's she's made what Lady Bird was a comedy, Little Women was more of a drama. This was a full on, uh, <laughs> full on raunchy comedy, family family friendly, more uh, appealing, crowd pleasing film than I mean. A lot of people will say Lady Bird is a great movie and everything, but is it necessarily crowd pleasing? Um, a broad kind of broad audience really sort of does it appeal to a broad audience, excuse me. Um, I, I I wouldn't say this. The same thing with uh, little women, I don't think it appeals that much to a broad audience, but this one's like a universal movie. Like everyone, everyone's going to see this movie. Like even people that don't like movies. Like I have a couple of friends that they they're not really into movies, they just watch a couple of shows and that's it. They're doing Barbenheimer today or this week, you know, they're like super. Freaked out <laughs> of, 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 out of their minds with you know Barbie and Oppenheimer, so I think you know if if if, if she can do large scale action movies like something like Narnia, I think I think yes, absolutely. If You have a vision for it, you know. Please, please surprise me. I, I would love to see it. I'm I'm sorry, I would love to see a, a Narnia version. Uh, by Greta Gerwig.
0: I will say, if you can do absolutely anything you want in the world, which I do yeah. think Greta Gerwig can at this point, and you Greta choose Gerwig's Narnia, Avenger,
3: she's doing it. Avengers, <laughs> Eternals too. Greta Gerwig. Um, yeah.
0: coming out, guys, October 35th this year. Um, (laughs) If you can do anything you want in the world and you choose Narnia, I think you have to have a love and vision for that product. Not to, like, shut Narnia at all. You know, peace and love, all my Narnia stands. Um, So I think that gives me hope, is I think Greta has to have a vision or else, why would she choose this? It does not make sense to me. Um, I also would like to just quickly shine a light on. I really enjoyed the diversity, specifically within the casting of Barbie. I'd like to shed some light. I'm sorry that you know Ben Shapiro probably got upset at it. I did not watch his 43 minute video about it. Um, but when it comes to having different body styles when it comes to having different gender identities on screen i think it's incredibly meaningful to have in 2023 just casually and they did not do like press releases at least from what i saw like highlighting this like the mcu would but have a scene where ryan gosling is staring longingly into the eyes of a barbie played by a trans actor like i think that's very impactful that's very meaningful to put on a cinematic stage like this and i really appreciate that i really haven't heard that much backlash maybe because they're all pissed off at everything else the film is saying about women but like I don't know. I really appreciate that and I think that again when it comes to Greta and just like in every one of her films maybe little women a little less there's just this constant sense of like boldness like she goes for it and she stands for like you know what she believes in I appreciate that it seems in the studio system where so many get torn apart and we can talk about everyone who's gotten to Marvel or any most you know directors when they get a bigger film it just like falls apart But like I don't know so far Greta's nailing it Greta's sticking to like her style to what she believes in and like I really appreciate that it takes someone special to work in the studio system I think and so far so good for Greta
2: I would I'd if love to, want... um, to to sorry I just, I just be I uh, really quick I'd love to jump onto that as well because me me and you Kirsten, we we spoke about this with Assassination Nation about Harry Neff who, who's the, the actress you're speaking about now and um, we, we haven't actually seen a lot of her since then I think we've only seen two major vehicles and that, that was what we talked about beforehand so it was really good to see to see that um, to see them back into a major feature, and how Gerwig sort of, and I'm going to use this word, these words correctly. It feels like a natural progression in which we cast trans actors, tran, trans people, we 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 cast people of color, uh, different sexualities, and it's not made to be a massive ordeal within the MCU sort of style, into sort of hinder it in hindsight because it makes. The, the the casting seemed like a um, a part of the like Disney sort of ideology. It felt, it felt it very like... natural. Yes, because the the MCU does this thing where it, the film will be made and then it will be then it will be set after the fact. Like onward, we have we have two uh, we have two gay characters. And it's like okay, Star Wars was exactly the same. or like oh, okay, and it's like this, this is just let's just have it in. It's natural to us, and let's just have the film it as is. But I, I can understand the idea of wanting to bring. Um, eyes to it and say we've we've got trans trans so we've got a trans actress so on and so forth. But I also think that brings a greater eyes and 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 probably detachment to the whole vehicle because then you get people who want to sort of see it and then and then sort of analyze it and and, and discredit it because they want to go on that political hemisphere thing. And, uh, you know what fair game whatever they want to do. But here it felt like a really really organic aspect, and there is no difference of how Gerwig would shoot this to any other. Uh, person in the film which i thought was absolutely beautiful that that i think there's 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 no nothing in that sequence that you're talking about as well wait it's detachment because we know who they are blah 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 it feels so organic feels so natural it felt so authentic and it's that cinematic eye where, regardless of who is in that scene it's made to feel real which is which is generally one of the highlights if we're going to do top bottom three I thought that was incredibly good. I'm glad you you highlighted that because I almost forgot about it. I thought it was brilliant. Really, really well done. Really well done.
1: Plus, in modern blockbusters, usually they 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 make a big deal out of it. It's not necessarily very good. Like Disney does that all the time. We have our first gay character. It's like our 100th first gay character. You know, and it's it's always a throwaway line that they can censor for foreign countries. Uh, But in this one, it's like, look, here's a trans Barbie. We're not making a big deal out of it. It's just there. And it's better representation than pretty much any other mainstream, large-scale blockbuster that we've seen in a very long time.
2: Yeah, because they, they could have highlighted this as trans Barbie in the credits. They could have highlighted this in pre yeah. pre-release material, and they didn't. Yeah. And I think there's probably two arguments for that. I can imagine someone fighting for that, because I think we and Carson spoke about this about the Wachowskis when The Matrix were re-released, not to drop it again, but we felt there was a concern where they could have changed those names on the front and the end of the credits. But I think once you look at this film and I know I know it's going to bring a political eye, I think it was a very beneficial film to have it more organic in the feature because the pre-motional material would have just been hijacked. It would have been, it would have been politicalized to, to no other. And I think the actual political undertones and, and, and context of this film would have been sort of pushed to one side. And then it would have been weaponized. So there was a genius idea there, but I'm not. I'm not saying that was a conscious idea. I think that was just an idea that was brought out. But it was well done, no matter what. Like Max said, it was. It was. It was really well done. I've seen certain people on Twitter and uh, Letterbox make the accusation this might win Academy Awards. Now I'm not in that 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 <laughs> that hemisphere at all. I, I think it might win set design. I think it could win production design. I'd like to know if anyone else would have thought that this might win something, and maybe perhaps give a a decent reason why? Because I don't see them winning Academy Awards for performance.
1: Yeah, I, think, I think people are way over their heads over this. I don't know. It's too early to talk about Oscars,
2: man. Okay, just- yeah, I agree. I agree. Wait, yeah. wait,
1: wait, wait, wait until the end of the year. It's like every time there's a really good movie out in theaters, people get <laughs> out this is going to win 10,000 yeah. Oscars, Best Actor for Ryan Gosling, Best Actress for Mark Roman. I'm like, I'm like Cal- calm, calm down. I can see it, though, at the end of the year, Getting a lot of technical awards: production design, cinematography, yes, um, costumes, yes. That's costumes song. especially. Yes, songs. Yes. Um, I, I I could see that happening, but I I really wouldn't want. I, I want to go. I want to watch everything before I talk about.
3: I think it depends <laughs> yeah. on what gets delayed too, right? If yeah, everything yeah. gets pushed. Yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like the Academy has never loved Gosling. They didn't like First Man or love it. They didn't. Yeah, but, yeah, I thought I he should have won terrible. for La La Land. I I was he nominated? Maybe. I can't remember. I
1: think he was. I think, I think he was. That's he was. I said. Yeah. That, I, I was say. like, I okay,
3: I don't know. So I don't know why they would hear. I guess they've added so many members, and if you subtract movies in the you know off the release date, then maybe by way of you know this is all that came out. But I don't know.
2: I I think with the strikes, and what's happening with Dune, and what's going to happen with quite a few other features. I think with with the boom that's Oppenheimer has happened as well with Barber, I think the academy will academy will be quite uh, distraught not to publish these two as the thing of the year. So I can I can definitely see it getting pushed to categories it perhaps wouldn't do do if it was a, if it was a there wasn't a backlog, but I would just be quite wary if this were this won any lead actor lead actress. I don't think it's there at all. I don't think it's there for support. I can see a world where Michael Cera gets nominated. I just—it frightens me to death. I just don't think it's there at all. But maybe, maybe, maybe the academy might think differently. I don't know.
1: Michael Cera is a legend.
2: <laughs> yeah, he really is. He's good in this. He's very um, good. Alan,
3: would it be adapted or original screenplay? I think it'd be adapted.
0: I, I could see it sneaking in point. that
3: because sometimes yeah. that category, the adapted ones, are sometimes hard to, you know, Logan, maybe something like that. It gets mm, in. That's now. true. But I, I think I agree with Jack, Luke. I, it would kind of be a really the the Barbie, but you're right. So, I and mean, you know, also uh, with I Max, mean, I... it's it's a year out essentially. I... I think it'll yeah, do well I at Golden Globes, go obviously.
0: I think this is gonna be nominated probably when comedic at the Golden Globes. I'm sure it'll do well with yes. credit groups. I'm sure they're gonna send out a bunch of like really fun I'm sure that I'm Kenough uh hoodie will be sent out to critics. Mm. So critics will vote for it. Um I don't know about Oscars I, I'm very conservative when it comes to my Oscar predictions I was someone who until the day at one was doubting everything ever all at once this is still straight oh. white men voting let's be very clear there's thousands of them mm-hmm. out there um, voting for the Oscars um, I don't know how many were enticed to go see Barbie um, but we will see Hi, friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode of ClapperCast. I'm going to interrupt very quickly just to remind everyone that if you want more ClapperCast, you can go ahead and subscribe to our Patreon. Every month we do a bonus review only on Patreon. It's the only place you're going to find it. So far, we've reviewed Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We have reviewed Lady Bird. That just went up. If you want us to hear us talk about um, more Greta Gerwig, that was a really fun episode. Next month, we're reviewing District 9. The month after that, we're reviewing Luca Guadagnino's A Bigger Splash. A lot of fun content on there. We have full feature-length commentary tracks. Me and the good Alina Falds. We watched Murder Mystery and we watched Sonic the Hedgehog. You can watch those those films with us. Um, we also uh, are having a bunch of archival content get added to that very shortly. A lot of our old classic Clappercasts episodes um, that were behind a different Patreon are going to be added to our Clappercast Patreon. So it's all going to be on there. I think that some of our most iconic work. I'm going to be honest. If you don't don't know we reviewed a ghost story and we literally ate entire pies we did a pie eating contest in honor of that film if you've seen that film you'll know what i'm talking about if you haven't uh, you're probably gonna be really confused about the correlation um but i think that was like probably our most iconic moment and it's gonna be on our patreon so only for like two or three dollars a month you can get access to that and more fun bonus content if you're interested in that the link is below it's everywhere on our social medias Um, And I thank you if you joined us on Patreon, uh, because not only are you getting that bonus content, um, but you are also supporting the show and supporting us talking about film and doing what we love. So thank you so much for those who have joined already. um, And I hope to see you there if you haven't. Uh, So back to the episode. One film I do think will do really good at the Oscars is Oppenheimer if we want to transition over to Christopher Nolan's newest (laughs) effort. Um, I think that probably is going to speak to the white men a little bit more. And I'm so excited for us all to talk about it. Let's take a look at Oppenheimer and then we'll come back and talk about it. Wow. We're doing it twice this episode. That's fun.
3: We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means.
0: If the Nazis have a bomb
1: have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that?
3: We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's
2: go recruit some scientists.
0: Okay, Christopher Nolan, Clappercast. It's a history we have. I would say our first era of Clappercast, I would say is defined by Christopher Nolan and the release of Tenet um, and how you pronounce Tenet because there was a lot of debate on that leading up to the film. (laughs) Uh, You know I'm coming to you, Mr. Editor-in-Chief Jack Luke Sharp because we've done just, I think, possibly the most podcasting anyone's ever done on Nolan. We did exclusive uh, uh, intense podcasting and references to Tenet. We had a I think an 8-hour recording where we reviewed every single Nolan film for a Patreon and that went on mm-hmm. endlessly. Um and now we have a new to- <laughs> Nolan feature, so I of course have to ask you first uh Jack, what did you think of Oppenheimer?
2: So the the last time we spoke about this, we, we spoke about Tenet, which I think he always gets me in the cinema. I'm always. But anyway, Tenet came out in a very difficult position for a lot of people during COVID. It was a savior of COVID for a lot of people. Um, It it, it probably was for a lot of students as well. So I'm not going to diss that. I walked into that film. I enjoyed it. I walked out of it. And and every time, every minute that passed was a fleeting reminder of why I didn't like it. I was very, very worried going into this, knowing it was three hours, because I thought, if I don't like the first hour, I'm going to sit there for two hours and just squeal to myself. Um, I am. I'm so happy to say, like everybody else is, I think this is his magnum opus. I think it's that good. But I don't think it's as good as what people are thinking it compared to um, other contemporaries. This to me felt like 2001 meets Citizen Kane. It was just a powerhouse of two ideologies, two converting uh, ideas coming together to make a film about experimentation and extermination. And it was horrendously horrifying. Um, th- throughout its running time, it was uh, a roller coaster of just intense, intense um, human psyche sort of investigation. I think Murphy was incredible at doing that. Uh, there are a few things that I'm sort of here and there on, but for for a three hour roller coaster, I don't think there's one director living today who could have done that film as good as Christopher Nolan. I think it's a ma- masterclass of a connection between image and sound. Only ever probably seen like 2001. I think it's that good. I think anybody comparing Interstellar to that film or any of the Dark Knight work, I think this Oppenheimer is his work, just like Inception was. It's his film. It's not based or or burdened to any other prehistoric piece of of feature or cinematic venture. Um, It's his through and through. I thought it was an incredible experience. I took my dad to see it. I took my dad to see Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible and this. And we went to the half nine showing because we got out one. So I was like, oh, this is going to be difficult for him. And he was just glued. And I, f- I felt the same. It was packed. He had it, 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 it had so much energy in, in the feature. It was just an outstanding cinematic experience. One that I don't think will travel very well to um, Blu-ray or, or home video, unfortunately, because it is just that spectacular venture. But I don't think he'll ever make a better film. And I'm going to say that with, uh, hand on heart. I just don't think he will, ever. I don't think he's ever made a better film than this. I think this is as close as we'll ever get to seeing Kubrick reincarnate. I think it's that good. I really do think this will sweep. I think it'll be a defining moment for him in his career. I think it'll be a defining moment for a few people come Academy season as well. And I think it'll be a defining moment in the future where a lot of film students will watch this and see how it's done. It's that good. I thought it was absolutely outstanding from minute to minute. It's incredible. Really incredible.
0: Jacob, I see you have like, taken out the notes. Do you, have, do you want to go next, maybe?
3: Yeah, I can go. Yeah, I, I got a little notebook. I was, I was writing it down when I was watching Oppenheimer. Um, yeah, I was lucky enough. I caught it in 70mm IMAX at Universal, so I was able to do that. Um, it was awesome. I have heard, though, there's all the poor projectionists because they're getting all these complaints. I think a lot of people that have never seen anything on film are going, why is it flickering? Um, look, if your digital screening is flickering, that's a problem. That's the light bulb. If your film is flickering, that is perfection. Um, every grain, every... Um, but he really plays, No one really plays with... Um, help me out. Aspect ratio. Really plays with the aspect ratio to the point where... It's like, you walk in a room, it's in IMAX, you go into the room, it's like, you know, normal, um, and it's every cut and stuff like that. So I thought, to me, this is, it was interesting, oh, this is Nolan's first biopic, this might be his most normal movie, um, that's probably Dunkirk, after I saw this, um, because this is Nolan at the height of his cinematic powers, um, so... When I think about that, right? There's not, there's no CGI. Um, it's, you know, we get these, it, it, and two, how the bomb is throughout the whole movie. You get these acts. Um, it's in his head, and we see the visions of, you know, the the protons and stuff in his head, and then the Trinity test site, um, which I was fortunate enough, I was able to visit the Trinity test site earlier in the year. Um, and so we went there and seeing that in person, there's definitely a humbling, you, you come away very humbled, right? Because you know, wow, what happened here and all that. But then also there is this, the town's not there anymore, but the ranch house, which I believe is the one um, that him and, um, help me out, actress move into his wife. Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. Yeah. Emily Blunt, who gives a good performance. I, I thought she was a little undercooked in it as well, but she, she gets her she gets her moments in there. So they move into the house, but there's there's something so casual about it too. You see all these pictures, and there's a there was a pool that they were swimming in. Um there's this guy, there's these guys, they're all wearing cool glasses, shirts off, and you're like, well, okay, this is simultaneously the biggest thing in the world, and also kind of very casual, which maybe kind of is shown with Jack Wade on the bongos of how they were also having fun at the same time. Just in the sense of our hero of this movie or um, lead of this movie, Oppenheimer, gets to, right, he becomes the mayor of this city. I did think where it loses me, I thought the script is, I, and I know Nolan is always going to go... Uh, it's not going to be linear. It's always going to be nonlinear. It's going to be cut up. It's not even that I had a problem with that. It's that each act feels very separate. And I think for where the movie goes, this turn of, oh, this is where we're going now to the post-bomb um, life of Oppenheimer, I it seems set up to invoke shock, maybe a twist per se um not that you can really spoil this movie right but it is um and that is where i was like okay this is not his finest script i think it lacks the emotion there too i felt the serious weight of the bomb and you see that too it's it's inside of him right these recreations of the explosions in his head i thought that was just the best the movie had to offer there. It was, I mean, it was so visceral. You're in his head. He's, he's in an area surrounded by hundreds of people and it's, he's just, he's lost. Um, And it's weighing on him. But I really just thought that each act and this idea that we're seeing subjective with color or through Oppenheimer's view and objective or the historical view through um, maybe Robert Downey Jr. um, I think that for where it goes, it, wasn't totally it is interesting because there is this sense of we're not being told the truth by anybody i think even oppenheimer says this of like finally someone says the truth but then even he later right he's weighed down by this bomb but he can't wait to try to get back into congress or helping out with the politicians right and he but this is a true story and i do think it is I agree with Jack Luke of where maybe this is the only guy that can do this, Chris Nolan, just because right, they said Dune was impossible to adapt. This is the impossible film to adapt. And then we're seeing that right now. And maybe American Prometheus is the impossible story, the weight of it to truly convey it all, to adapt. Mm-hmm. But I think it lost me. There's also there's some cheesiness here of uh, the first time that the I am I become death quote comes in. I was like, okay, what? And then two um with the president as well when they're talking. Um there's just some throwaway lines that are almost as a joke, or maybe to make it a little less unserious. And I thought maybe that's how I read it. I I it at points it loses me. I think it's not his greatest script. I think he throws himself into it fully, and you get Nolan. Right. I think it's at the height of his cinematic powers, but I, I don't want to go on forever because I'll just get in this nonlinear loop of Oppenheimer. But I will say I walked out of it. It feels triumphant. You can feel, oh, my gosh, the the sound design and Gore Hansen score too. just so good. Um, it's really everything's together, I would say write your next script with your brother, get the emotion in there again, get Killian Murphy and his father in Inception, McConaughey and his daughter in Interstellar. I think that is where they're at the best of the emotion, but the weight, I mean, you walk out of this movie going, wow, that was heavy. Um, So I'll, I'll pass it off. I I, I mean, like I said, I'll, I'll, my brain is Chris Nolan's nonlinear about this movie. I, I did think it was good. I do not, I don't believe it's his greatest work and that's, from the script and pacing mostly
0: i'll quickly hop in because i actually agree with you a lot there jacob um so i do think the film is good i think especially when it comes to performances like second to none there's multiple performances in this i mean throughout that i would say like award-worthy Definitely one of the best ensembles of the year. Special props, not I'm saying he's best in show here, but like Matt Damon, again, similar to Marco Robbie. Every time I see him between (laughs) this and air, especially this year, I'm just like, this guy's amazing. Like this is truly one of our best actors working. I also like that you mentioned the 70 millimeter flashing. This is my first time I think I've ever seen a film on film. Um, I got a cute little like thing for it, but I was definitely there like for the first 10 minutes. Like, why is it flashing? I was like, this is a lot, but then I got used to it. Um, I agree, though, with the pacing. So first I would just recommend anyone who can go watch the documentary The Day After Trinity, I believe it's called. It's the basically documentary version of Oppenheimer. It's streaming on Criterion Channel right now for free in the U.S., even if you don't have an account. Um, it adds a lot of insight behind what life was like at the... Um, town they build and such like that um but there's a point in this film about two-thirds in i want to say where you get the trinity test and you get hiroshima and i think the big misconception a lot of people have with this film and this is not the story of trinity this is not the story of hiroshima this is the story of oppenheimer and i think if you go in to the movie, not expecting that or not necessarily keeping that in your mind, it's really easy to get lost in the emotional stakes of the, especially the aftermath of Hiroshima and the speech he gives and just like this fucking incredible, like, dark, just devastating scene where he really takes in the weight of what has happened. I think it's really easy to feel afterwards like it's hard to care about Oppenheimer. Because when you get introduced to death and destruction on this level, this many lives violently just destroyed, I mean, literally obliterated with their town. I think it sometimes is hard to then go into basically a courtroom drama about this one random guy who's like, The the drama is that he's losing his security clearance. It's it's not necessarily comparable. Nolan, I think, works to bring it back. And by the end, you're hooked again and you're interested again. But I think it's hard for me to go. And in a film that plays around with narrative and time so much, I feel like it would have been really easy to reschedule this and just have that Hiroshima moment be the last part of the film. And I think it would have worked better. Um, but definitely, I think it's a f- very fine effort. Definitely way better than Tenet. Um, but I guess those <laughs> are my quick opening thoughts. Max, what did you think?
1: Uh, my worst enemy is uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, sound design because uh, it, Dunkirk was fucking loud. And uh, Tenet also. I went to see Tenet in IMAX. You know, first movie after the lockdown and everything. Jesus Christ. couldn't understand a single piece of dialogue. The mm-hmm. music was... So freaking loud. I remember the scene where they went on the boat to talk, like skew exposition, talking in like speak uh, microphones or some shit. You couldn't hear anything. The waves were just going so loud. The music was going. And so (laughs) when I went to see Oppenheimer, I brought earplugs. I don't know if you can see those earplugs Uh, because I went to see it in IMAX, Uh, not IMAX 70 millimeter. Uh, Unfortunately, the cinema that I went to got rid of their 70 millimeter projector after uh, Interstellar which I did see in 70 millimeter IMAX and it was incredible. Wow. And I only found out about this um, a couple weeks ago, actually I inquired about if Oppenheimer was going to play in 70 millimeter IMAX. He told me, no, 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 the, the projector is no longer there anyways. So i an IMAX uh, Xenon digital, whatever. Uh, and I fucking love this movie. Absolutely. Love this movie. <laughs> um, the it's, it started <laughs> when the movie started, the sound design, I went, Oh shit, it's going to go really loud. And it, did at some point go very loud uh, during the uh, Trinity test uh, explosion. But most of the dialogues were, uh, you, could, you could hear all the dialogues. It was great because it's, it's a dialogue heavy movie. If the music would just overpower the dialogue, I would give this movie like one star or something like that. I don't know, man. I, I, I just, I feel Nolan's sound design is just terrible. Even if he has an explanation behind behind it, I just, yeah, I, I, I don't vibe with it. But this is an incredible film. Spectacular in every sense of the word, it is... Um, I, I said this um, in my Letterbox review and in my review that I wrote for the TheCosmicCircus.com. Monumental. Monumental, astonishing, towering piece of work. This is, in my opinion, Nolan's best movie. My controversial um, take on Nolan was that The Dark Knight Rises is his best film. Uh, which, yeah, some people don't agree. But um, I saw this film at a very impressionable age in a the theater, and my mind was just blown and I rewatched it um, during uh, COVID and it was still just as amazing um, And but this blows it out of the water no pun intended, blows it out of the water it's <laughs> amazing, absolutely amazing, I mean Killian Murphy he's been in Nolan movies for so long but he's never acted in a lead role, just incredible it, it, it almost feels like Christopher Nolan always wanted Killian Murphy to lead one of his films but didn't find the right role for him and in this one he's like yep You are the only person that can play Oppenheimer. Um, He is just riveting. And it's been a while since we've seen Robert Downey Jr. act in a movie. Because, you know, he's great as Iron Man. Like, don't get me wrong, but he's not acting. He's just playing himself. Uh, Is this Doolittle Arranger? Hold on now. (laughs) Don't get me started on Doolittle. That movie is fucking horrible. Um, It was one of the last (laughs) movies I saw before the world shut down. I saw it at the same IMAX theater, by the way, and I went, what is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh but like like for uh, i think this is the first role robert downey jr has act like actively acted in since like tropic thunder or <laughs> kiss, kiss bang bang agreed um like even sherlock holmes he plays himself but like in this one he's just absolutely amazing and i would i would even say this is the best thing he's ever done in his career same thing with Killian murphy like he is just wow. so captivating and the movie has a lot of characters and a lot of moving parts oh yeah zodiac is also very good um Josh Hartnett, Benny Safdie, Josh Peck, uh, Jesus, Kenneth Brana, Gary Oldman as President yes. Truman. That scene is bone chilling. He's in the film for like five minutes and he just completely obliterates. Like, people talk about showing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you show these horrors when it's, you know, it's unfortunately not about the, the victims, it's about Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer never saw these horrors. And it's far more terrifying when he goes to see the president. That talks about these horrors with with with, with the with a sort of nonchalant eye. He's not necessarily he doesn't necessarily care about any anybody that died. He's just like, yeah, I pushed the button, whatever, you know, it happened. Don't let that crybaby uh, in here ever again. Uh, it's far more terrifying than seeing these horrors because they don't necessarily care. I think there was the a general early on in the movie was like, yeah, we're not gonna we're gonna take Kyoto off that map because my wife and I went on honeymoon yeah. there. And it's like Jesus, and people were people yeah. were laughing like in the theater. Like that's not that's not funny. Like that's,
2: yeah.
1: this this is probably literally how it went down. And it's it's so scary. It's, it's 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 I literally when the movie ended, my heart was pounding so like so fast, my body was shaking. And I, I and I and I never had this visceral reaction in front of the movie in a very long time. I don't even remember like when was was like I was couldn't like physically speak. Like after movie, I went to see the film with a friend of mine, and he was like, "What did you think?" And I'm like, "What, what do you want? What do you want me to say?" Like, I just, you know, I, 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 and I still sort of haven't necessarily processed the whole thing. Still, like, I'm still like in the middle of going, "Wow, like this movie is is is, is absolutely monumental." Uh, Christopher Nolan, um, he's he's made some of the greatest movies ever made, but this, I think, you know, structurally, the editing is. Stunning, just absolutely, just you you get a sense that he he wants to tell us the story in a in a non linear way, but it's just you know you 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 easily associate what he's telling in Strauss's perspective versus Oppenheimer's, and it flows very well. And the IMAX photography, uh, I'm like, can you do a three hour talking I guess ninety (laughs) five talking biopic in IMAX? Yes, you can. IMAX is great for anything. Like I'm, I'm an IMAX shill. Okay, I don't, I don't bootlick for any studio, or whatever. But like IMAX, I'm going to shill for IMAX like all the time. <laughs> I've seen like over a hundred movies in IMAX. I think I don't know if you can see back there. I've got a letter from IMAX like on there. Uh, yeah, so I'm like I'm like a I'm like an IMAX fanboy. Um, the Trinity test is possibly some of the greatest use of imax photography imax 1570 photography i've seen and possibly ever the way that nolan captures the explosion you know before we get to hear what that explosion sounds like and i did put some earmuffs and did absolutely nothing uh <laughs> it's just it's just incredible I, I i my jaw was on the floor i, I it's been a while since i've seen a nolan movie that i just loved so much but i'm, I'm so glad it was, it was it was that one and that he completely knocked it out of the park Anyways, I, I think I ramble for, for, for long enough, but yeah, it's <laughs> an incredible movie. It's one of my favorites of the year. It's not my favorite of the year. That still goes with John Wick Four. That movie just blew my mind <laughs> blew my mind so <laughs> so much. But uh yeah, this is probably my second favorite of the year. I think if the fall slate dries up because of the strike, this is gonna win the best picture of all the awards. 100%. Hey, we're
0: covering John Wick 4 in a couple months. I hope to see you there. Um, I'll just quickly just throw in very quickly, as uh, you're talking about the cast. I also want to give props to Rami Malik for having his third yeah, yeah. good performance in his career after oh, Night at Museum God. one and two. I well just I, I mean know. I talk about it, I talk about it a lot on this podcast. I just want to say, you know, he was good in this. I did not hate him. And after Night at Museum one and two, you know, three. We did it, Rami. Wait, 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 I think it
1: was the third one too.
0: I'm talking about good performances. Though. I think he was bad in the third one. So, um...
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> Valid, though. You know, I, I, I was like, I, I, even myself, I was like, is he not going to let him speak? This is quite ballsy to do that. Academy Award winning lead actor. And then he gets the final sort of damning verdict. I was like, that's a choice. But there's a lot of choices in this film, which I think are very interesting. There are there are a few missteps. I think Florence Pugh is done so dirty here because that if you ever read about that character, that character is fascinating. It's a very internally destructive character. In real life, it was a, I think it's Jean Tatlock who was struggling with her sexuality as well. So she didn't notice if she was bisexual or if she was gay, but she was she was um, uh, coupling with Oppenheimer. He proposed to her twice. Um, she said no both times. There's so much more energy and power in the, that relationship, which could should have probably should and could have been brought to screen to give that momentum when we finally get uh, a certain scene involving her character. How he shoots that, he shot it three times. I don't know if anyone noticed. He shoots it that it's a suicide. He shoots that it's an accident. And he shoots that someone killed her. I thought it was genius. Is that it layers it three different types of setup, posts, posts it all together, set, cuts it together. I thought it was really well done. The biggest concern I have in this film, and it's the, it's the nature of the beast, and it's unfortunately the same thing that happened in, in, with The Last Jedi, is that it caters to one scene. Where we get to that whatever that stupid planet is, where Benicio del Toro is there, whatever it is. But the film has to go there, and the film has to leave off from there. This has a similar issue where it has to go to Einstein, and then it has to deviate from Einstein. But it has to keep that integral sequence as a factor of what this film is going to say and what it's what it's about to say. I think that, that to give more power to this film, it would have had, had him as a third party was off screen say the name, everybody knows the name, everyone knows the power of what that that, that man had, uh, that man crafted for for the the human species. So to just have that name works a dime a dozen. But to integrate him into the film as they do the first time on the lake and then cut away with Strauss walking up and never knowing what they actually say to the end, I thought was really well done. But then we meet him again, and then we meet him again, and then there's one time where Strauss is put into or into gets out of, i think it's murphy gets out of a car or whatever happens and the car moves away and he's just stood there and i'm like this is just going to get mean to death there and there's another choice where they do the same thing with kenneth branagh when he's brought in as well which was like that's a very strange choice to block that scene so i think it's going to get mean to death but it's interesting because you you could argue that he actually reiterates quite the same scene in just different types of um, cinematic styles, you know, we, we get a man still, who steal who really, really finds it difficult with that moral compass because cause in his heart he 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 knows that well, what's going to happen to this is going to be terrifying, but in his head he knows that he's going to ma- make a major scientific breakthrough that that you know he, he's waited for years to, to to make him probably will define the rest of his life, and, and that sort of ideology is, is carried throughout the film completely. But there's a lot that you could probably have stayed in here that he probably doesn't. So I think there could be an argument here of what, what the narrative weight, because there's a lot of the same thing reiterated. But again, that moral compass, that, that, that conscience, you do wrestle with guilt. That's how it works. So I thought how he brought that to screen was really well. But I agree with the, again, with the image and sound. It's, it's, it's just incredible. And I'm glad he didn't work with Oli I'm glad he didn't work with Hans Zimmer as well. These are two that are lesser known um, people within this cinematic community who are now going to get a, a bouquet of flowers because it's outstanding. It's really well done. Um, but I, I also agree with the uh, the amount of people who are in this film. It's like then you see Casey Affleck, then you see uh, the Safti brother, who is incredible, by the way. I can see I can see something coming out there with the Safti. I think he's outstanding. We have Josh Peck, like it was mentioned. Um, Olivia Furby's um, in this as well. And we just get Tom Courtney, obviously plays um, Einstein, which is just a strange casting choice. Um, we have Alden Elric in this, which is like, okay, it's just it's it's spotted really quite well with, um, I mean, almost engulfed with what you could probably see a bloated cameos. But I saw this on Twitter and it was interesting. Like, I think people are in here for ten seconds, twenty five seconds, thirty five seconds, minutes at tops, and they all give career performances compared to like them leading feature films. And that's only the power of the director, I've got to say, it's just incredible. It's like I agree with Max. I think if 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 this if this quiets down, which I think it will do, I can't see anything touching this. I just can't. I just re- it's such an achievement to do. And for it to have no CGI, I mean we, we saw Avatar get thrown into the ether about the CGI in two thousand and nine and how it was like the billion dollar thing. Look at the CGI. Only if we could have just advertised this as being the antithesis of that. I would love to have seen that as well. You know, there's no CGI. I mean, they've tried to in interviews. Don't get me wrong, but you know, but I, again, it's it's very difficult to sort of analyze this without having to have repeat viewings. Um, but it is it's what what venture to have as well. Now, just incredible. I, I'm the only one who hasn't seen it in 70 millimeter. I didn't get to see it in IMAX. I watched it in an, an ordinary cinema room. Um, I didn't, but I well, I don't know. I, I think my dad might have had the same issue. But I do agree with Max where there's, he has an issue with sound design and how he layers it. It's it's, it's like, I don't know if he, he's such a skilled perfectionist. I don't think he does that out of naivete or ignorance. I think it's conscious and I don't understand why he would do it. And that sequence on the boat you said in Tenet is a perfect example. I don't know why he would do that. And here, there are times where it's like, oh, what, what? But I, I don't know. I do think Florence Pugh gets done dirty, though. Emily Blunt doesn't, and I'm glad because you know there's a lot of people, including myself. I think Nolan does have a slight issue writing or curating to a female character, um, which is not necessarily an issue, but it, depending on what the film is. But here he, it, it rests on two very different type of characters, which is uh, Florence Pugh's character and Emily Blunt's character, because that's who this this. Antihero, you could say, rests on with with his thoughts, his opinions, his guilt, his conscience, and I just think it's just uh, I don't know if you can really fight the, the power of the Florence Pugh thing. I think that's really underwhelming. Not not uh, necessarily an issue of her. I think she's she's quite good in this, but I think Blunt. I was very worried about her, um, him uh, sort of using Blunt because I think she's very hit and miss sometimes. I thought she was incredible here. I thought she was really good. So I'm glad that he sort of got a few uh, uh, ghosts out of that closet. But I think there are still issues that are going to linger throughout his career. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of which of course is the sound design.
0: Nolan always is interesting with writing women though. I mean like mm-hmm. it's a you know if you want to bring up the most common complaint against Nolan it's that um I will say I think there's something about this narrative and it's a very complex thing to talk about and I think Twitter has been kind of a mess with it um there is and you mentioned the stuff with Blunt's character or with um Pew's character and the real life implications of that there is something to be said about I think this film has this really awful task of taking this figure like Oppenheimer and trying to humanize him and not trying to make him innocent because he does have the soul he bears and that's a lot of the film is the moral complexity of that and how does he live with what he's done um but even i'm not even saying with like hiroshima and stuff i know there's a lot of people who are like why didn't they show hiroshima i don't think you should have shown hiroshima um but even with just like where they pick in new mexico and then you read about it and there's been a lot of articles and such about um how that really did fuck up a lot of lives and how that really did like mass poison people and like really hurt uh, communities there and i think there is something to be said about this narrative and when you break down trying to Not protect Oppenheimer necessarily, but maybe not give all the facts of like, a lot of the stuff was really terrible for a lot of people. Um, And I see why some people would have a little bit of a disconnect with that. I think that's one of the reasons I originally had this at 4.5. I bumped it down to 4 a bit. Um, when you have a cinematic lens like this, especially of a story not a lot of people know about. I don't think Oppenheimer was a very like household name before this film. Maybe I'm wrong with that. I'm just a little bit young. I- I'll just say that's something that I think is noticeable, especially coming out of the film. And I don't know where I fully land on it because you want to give this biopic. In order for it to work, you kind of have to protect Oppenheimer to a sense. But like, how much should you be protecting the situation in Oppenheimer's role and stuff? I don't know. I'll say that's something I wrestle with when I think about this film. makes it a little bit hard for me to fully stand.
3: I I kind of agree. It's interesting, right? Because this, it's not the bomb. It's not Trinity. It is Oppenheimer's view on things, which is why you don't know what fully happens to Pew. Because at that time, he probably didn't know, right? He just hears it from news. Oh, or dad called me or something like that. Um, You see kind of some people go out and in and all this stuff. And it is interesting. um, But I almost wonder, there's a part near the end of the movie where blunt asks will the world forgive him but i was thinking wait i didn't feel like we were blaming him in the movie like he wrestles with it but i'm like because what's happening at the same time we're asking the judgment we're seeing him be almost found innocent in a courtroom so it is an interesting thing of because the um right this moment with um yeah, the moment with RDJ and Einstein—that's before the court case. So that's he's struggling with guilt there. But later on, we see this other um, guy. So I, I do think almost narratively, you you see this—it um, is—it is kind of conflicting. But maybe that's the point. He wrestles with it his whole life. Oh, he's wrestling with it here. He's fine here. He's and maybe later on, you know, he wrestles with it. Um, I do think. Yeah, I thought Alden was very good. That turn. He, I mean, right, he kind of carries in the third act of what? You did what, Robert Downey? And Robert Downey was so good. I thought he was really given mm-hmm. the chance. As great as I love their performances, I like Killian a lot. I think he's so great. But the speed and pacing of the movie, I almost wish we could have slowed down with him, where other characters like Matt Damon and Robert Downey are given a chance to kind of sit, right? The Matt Damon, I mean, he is... It's crazy, right? Because he's your dad's favorite actor, but he's also, you know, he does a Ford v Ferrari and he carries that so well, but he's so perfect for this Trinity scene and ushering in kind of the true, right, the Trinity sequence is like the most normal part of the movie. I do want to get Max's thoughts. I felt like the first act and the speed we're jumping into of how fast it's going, we're ushering to new college, new college. It felt like the hour at least the speed, the hour that Christian Bale is not in the dark night and they're going around having to plan. It kind of felt as quickly paced as that. And I'm like, what an interesting way to open it. Um, And then we slow down later and then we end a lot. But um, yeah, I do think it is. And Nolan too, obviously he is almost protecting. It seems as if he's protecting Oppenheimer. He's is, this is his thesis about why, here's the guy I've thought about. Obviously he's thought about Oppenheimer. I mean, he's thought about nuclear bombs his whole career. The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, this nuke. Um, Tenet is a cold war film about like nuclear explosions and all this stuff. So he is kind of also one that's thought about him his whole life, but then also, so you get Christopher Nolan's take on it while we are also seeing um, Oppenheimer's view on it. So I do think, but which goes back to Jack Luke saying the multiple viewings is going to be very interesting of the things you see. Oh, that's why they did this. Oh, this must have been in his head. Oh, that wasn't true. This was true. And there's a reason for that. And maybe that's why I, I don't think I've ever there's never been a Nolan movie where I didn't like it more the second time because you see things every time there's so many layers to it and maybe that is too part of the sound design oh i finally heard that line or whatever the how about the radiation ticker in the background that was such a good like it's so good and stuff like that is really great but um yeah i just think it's so massive but i know too there's all this stress of seeing it in the best cinema and i would say i think whichever screen you see it on it's, it's going to do its job.
0: Max, for you, I just want to quickly say, you mentioned Alden. I That's the man that was done so dirty by Solo. And this year, <laughs> not like the most random three movies, but between this, between his work in Cocaine Bear and his work in Fair Play, which will be on Netflix later this year, Like, I hope this is the start of a like, far better career because I think he's an exceptional talent in each one of these films. I think he's a standout. Um Maybe a little bit more in Oppenheimer and Fair Play than Cocaine Bear, but still, he's very fun in that film. Um, I'll just say, like, I hope he gets the flowers he deserves because he had the world had it kind of robbed from him, and now is kind of back on, you know, building himself up. And I think he's really deserving.
1: Yeah, Alden Ehrenreich was a great, great addition to this incredible cast. I mean, uh, it's been a while. I, I, I've always liked him. I thought he did an okay job as Han Solo, but that movie was just bad really, really, really bad. Uh, he's, but he's always really great in in, um, in everything that he's in, which is, which is very good. Um, I doubt I'll ever watch this movie again. I'll be very honest with you guys. It, it wow. shook me so much that I do not think that I have the the energy to, to watch it again. In a theater, definitely not. At home, maybe in 10, 20 years. But for now, I, I just I have no desire to watch this movie again. That, that, that's how like, vehemently just um it petrified me so much that i'm probably not going to revisit it like my, my parents are going to go see it next week they were they asked if i wanted to come i'm like nope you guys go have fun not really have fun but enjoy uh <laughs> but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna watch this movie again and i think someone brought up the um the question of a cgi um the reason why a lot of you know modern movies suck now is because the cgi is so noticeable and so terrible even if the budgets are you know the, the Flash. I mean, two hundred million dollars. It looks like shit. The, the CGI babies, <laughs> the CGI heads. I mean, it, it just looks so bad. And when you have CGI that looks so um, so terrible, and, and you could t- clearly see like this is a green screen, this is not a, this is not real. You, you, you know, you're you're out of the movie. You know, but Avatar something like Avatar, The Way of Water, because it's so realistic, because it feels so lived in. You know, you you buy into it, but. And, 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 but when it's practical, it's even more effective and more harrowing. I mean, like you know, Tenet—it has its flaws. When it comes to sound design, dialogue, characters, uh, the story—it's all terrible. But the action, the, the action sequences, the rhythm of the action sequences, how they you know inverted different things in you know uh, in the actions, like how they shot it, inverted—it's just it's so cool. You know, it's just so cool how it, Nolan does it. Um, and same thing with, with Oppenheimer. It's like a practical explosion that's just <laughs> insane. <laughs> but they, 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 he does it in a way that is, when, when you see it, is literally like show-stopping. Like your heart just stops. Like you're breathing. Like, like, like when, they, when it blew up, right, when, when the bomb blew up, I literally went, <gasps> and my breath was holding for like a very, very, very long time because you don't hear the, the sound when the bomb blows up. B- b- there's always a delay when, it, when there's an explosion. And as you're watching this, you're sort of breathing, you're sort of following the pattern of Oppenheimer's breathing, which you can hear as the bomb blows off. Uh, And then he says, now I am become death, destroyer of worlds, and then you get the the boom, and then you just you feel it, like, in your bones. And I think Nolan's motto since Tenet has always been don't try to understand it, feel it. This movie, you feel it, like you, you feel the movie more than I think you understand the implications of the, the story because there's a lot of moving parts. The first act is just like boom, 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 going from one place to another, uh, alternating between you know Strauss and Oppenheimer. It's it's not perfect, but it's still quite engaging. Uh, I did miss like two minutes in the first half because there were some people that the, the theater was sold out. It was sold out. There were some two people that were sitting behind. Oh, they weren't they weren't sitting because I was in the the, the the back row, very back row. They were like crouching down and they were like s- saying hi to me. I was like. Fuck are you guys doing here? And so I got up, went to get an employee, and they ran out of the theater. <laughs> so I missed like the part where he um, he talks to Josh Hartnett at the beginning. Uh, but yeah, the, the film is, is is absolutely incredible, and and I love how Nolan always pushes the boundaries of practical filmmaking more than anything else. I don't, I, I doubt that even the final shot of the planet Earth uh, in flames was done with CGI. I think there I think we'll we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. And, and, and by the way, he devised black and white IMAX photography, which did not exist before that, right? IMAX specifically developed a black and white film, uh, for Nolan because they love him so much because, you know, without, without the dark Knight um, coming out in IMAX, you know, shooting, uh, Nolan shot several sequences with IMAX cameras. The IMAX brand wouldn't be what it was, what it is today. Um, it's, it's because of him, essentially, that I want to do this. Okay, fine. I don't know if that's possible, but he keeps pushing the boundaries of large format photography every time. And it's always, you know, the, the black and white looks amazing. It looks incredible. Uh, what, what, what he does with the IMAX camera, even just in intimate moments, you know, because it's, it's a very, again, it's a very dialogue-heavy movie, but just in the, the intimate moments when the IMAX frame opens up and you get to see the camera slowly panning to Robert Downey Jr.'s face, Herculean Murphy, when he's in bed, he's thinking about the quantum, quantum mechanics, and you get to see, like, um, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to say it, but, like, um, you know, quantum, uh, the visualizations of, like, space and time, I don't know how to say it, but, like, you know, you get, you get to see that, like, as he's sitting, uh, he's lying down in bed, you get to see that a little bit, or the sky, shots of the sky and everything. Like, that scene, uh, I think the the track from Ludwig Göransson who does another, that score is amazing, uh, it's called Can You Hear the Music, that, from, like, from that moment
3: on, like, that that can sequence. you hear the music, Robert? And then we yeah. just play through yeah, this yeah. symphony. And I think yeah. if you're a viewer, if you can hear the music, you like it. If you can't hear the music,
1: yeah, that's that's that's, that's the entire point of the view. movie. Because like the the friend that I saw it with was a little cold on it. It's like I didn't get it. I'm like, well, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was it was I I, I, I have a, I have, a, I have a I have a hard time with dialogue-heavy movies uh, sometimes. But this one was yeah, it was it was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and uh, it, it pushes the boundaries of, of filmmaking much more uh, uh, forward than, um, than than many of the blockbusters that came out nowadays. And I just want to add one more thing. And I'll just stop talking. AI <laughs> couldn't have written Oppenheimer. Couldn't have written Barbie. Well done. Uh, That's true. We'll never ever ever get these movies out of Chat GPT. Period. <laughs> like the success of Barbie, the box office success of Barbie and Oppenheimer is due to the fact that these are primarily author driven films they're made by filmmakers who have a singular artistic vision and it's because of that that these movies are that good that people love these films because you can tell you can, you can see the director's imprint in every frame in the editing in the actors performances they're completely in sync with what the director uh director wants so you cannot ai cannot make shit like this and we should stop using ai in film and tv that's my sort of yeah.
0: statement um I also think it's interesting as a film, as a fan of film, uh, globally seeing, I think the passion for film become more and more niche and the passion for filmmaking is quite concerning. I think it's interesting to see what films has really captivated people when it comes to filmmaking and we'll see what the legacy of Barbie and the legacy of Oppenheimer does. Both of them to a point fall into this, but the other big example recently was Top Gun Maverick, which also featured or touted a lack of visual effects, even though I think there was quite a bit more obviously in there than Oppenheimer, but, um, I think it just continually proves that these are the films that captivate audiences, not just from a narrative perspective, not just visually, which they're all visually great, but when it comes to just the power of filmmaking, I think it's really beautiful to see the reaction from the general public towards these films and towards respecting their crafts from their filmmakers. Um, And I hope that's something that, you know, a lot of studios right now have a little bit of downtime due to their own actions, and hopefully it's something they pick up on. Because I think, you know, looking at the trailers that played before these films, you know, I'm far more interested in this than I am about Blue Beetle, you know? So I hope that (laughs) a lesson is found here. Um, Probably won't be, you know, knowing life, knowing humans, knowing studios, but I'm hopeful that this general love for filmmaking is something that can live and grow. And it's films like this that is going to allow that to happen. So I'm really hopeful in that sense.
2: I just want to add add something that not necessarily a contrarian opinion, but uh, just something a little bit different. Um, This is in this podcast as well. It's a lot of people have been talking about the bomb sequence and the, the sequence was like memed during pre-production and principal talker. was like, Oh, he's going to blow up. He's going to blow up a real bomb. stuff like that. And I think if you watch the film, I think you could sort of make, make a really good um, point that, that's, that's the, that everything that's really about that is that bomb, is that bomb going off, it's a moral conscience like that. To me, and it's interesting that Max said about you know don't think, just feel, I sort of disagree with that on the last act, the last hour of this film when he's in constant negotiation with the, with the, the hung jury, right? I think that's Nolan actually taking a stand there and um, the, the, if anyone's done any old Hollywood research, if anyone's done any sort of film theory or that, you'll understand what McCarthyism is during the, uh, during the, uh, the uh, post-1947, during, um, I think it's called the Second Red Scare. And people were basically yep. persecuted for having left-leaning ideologies, which could be giving money, as, as this is, to a, to a, against a, a fascist cause in Spain, or just might believing that socialism might work, regardless of what it was. And what one victim of that is Trumbo, who, who Brian Cranston played in, in in a film, is a prolific writer. Um, and obviously, it's not necessarily an issue that that just focused on Hollywood, but it was primarily because of the the opening of the uh, the golden age of cinema. Um, I felt that Nolan could have really deterred from having that conversation, not necessarily getting really deep into it, but discussing it to a point where it was it was amicable, but then leaving it. But I was incredibly proud and, and, and really sort of pat on the back for him to, to dissect what was happening there. These people who chose him to do this project, who knew who he was, knew what he'd done, I used and abused him for his powers to set up a chain reaction that they then could encompass and monetize, and then throw him to the dogs as what they do. And not this is not just the, the US, but this is sort of a, a governmental issue, not to get fucking... Okay. Uh, Alex Jones and everyone here, but it, it's an issue that people use and abuse uh, power, and they did they did in the um, in the '40s, they did in the '50s in, in in Hollywood. It's very interesting now that this film comes out at a point where we have studios using abusing craft for monetary gain without paying those people justified wages, um, and I think it was incredibly ballsy for him to do that because obviously I know that that, that Gerwig has had, had put scenes into Barbie. At the studio was like. We should sort of cut that. And she was like, "Why am I making the film then?" And I like that. I like that putting uh, on on the block, uh, and, and you know, having your day in court essentially. And here, I think he does exactly the same thing, and he does it to a point where it could not have come out at a better time. If you're going to pay someone or you're going to give someone the, the the chance to do something, create something for you, you have to give a beneficial uh, bargain to them. Where you you should pay them. You should you should give them plaudits. You should you know. Ultimately, you can't be the judge during executioner of your own trial. And I think Hollywood at the moment is trying to do that. And the fact that, like what we said, again, what Max reiterated about the no CGI thing, it, you know, it, it's interesting. You could, you could dissect this and look at a political statement from Nolan on the state of Hollywood as well. And I think somewhere there's a really good essay. There's a really good feature on that somewhere. Not from me. I think it's too deep for me. But there's a really good Throw uh sorry investigation into the to the layers of what he's trying to achieve there i just hope that people see that because i'm i'm quite deep into all hollywood I, I, I a bit running this is it's in you've got to sort of really investigate film and love film and i that's not against anyone else i think everyone loves film but we need to sort of see that this is not just a um a usual you know tick of the box this has happened quite a lot throughout hollywood they never pay anyone residuals properly. And here I think is a great example of just giving a little bit of shine to it, but why not taking away from the film? I hope people see that. I don't think people will because it's it's a minute issue in the film. But I'm really glad that he he actually dived into that and really, really investigated what these people had done to this man, prosecuted and persecuted someone they had chosen. Also as well, I know people might want to talk about but another thing, I put this on Twitter, what made me angry about this film? It's no fault of its own. Was like really upset me that he couldn't make his Howard Hughes biopic because uh, the Aviator got there first. He was meant to make it with Jim Carrey, and knowing he, what he could do with this, I would have loved to have seen that because Hughes is such an interesting person with 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 uh, the mental health issues he had as well, which he had to try to over- overcome. The amount of money he made, the ideas that he went to with his philanthropic um, oil money. <clears throat> excuse me, especially within cinema, he's the first person to make the push-up bra because he because he went against the pseudo system. He made the first um, hospital bed. He designed it when he was, when he was he had seven, I think 70% of his body was burned. Um, he just drank, drank orange juice for the whole procedure. He's such an interesting character, which I think Score says he didn't quite grasp. I think looking at this, I would love for him to pick that back up and pick someone, not necessarily like Murphy again or Bale, but go back and choose Carey. See how that character and that person has, has evolved. This, I think, is just the start. I re- i'm I'm so invested in to see what he does next i just hope he doesn't and do nolan
3: called the aviator writes. script his best script yeah he said that's the best thing i've ever written so i agree with you when i saw your tweet i said yes
2: yeah i, I hope he does it but i don't know I, I just don't know how how would you get financing for that but then again this this was done for a million a hundred million dollars which is insane I, I bet i bet the uh uh, advertising for Blue Beetle is a hundred million dollars. It's crazy. So I'm I, I'm I'm all in in favor of what he does next. I just hope he does that. He, was, he was biop biopic one day because it's it's an era as well that people forget. It's an era of, you know, that type of person. Again, he's like Oppenheimer, like Carson said earlier. He's not he's not straight laced hero. He was a bastard. He was horrible. Um, he has multiple accusations against him. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, of sexual and um, monetary. So, uh, again, th- there's, there's a character there to, to look at, but I think here, I just really, really, enjo- not necessarily enjoyed, but appreciated the fact that he did look, to, look at the Red Scare, you know, because what? Because someone gave some money to, to Charity, and it's like they, 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 the, the whole ideology that they create their own prison, and then they don't like that they're inside it, and they want to break out. Uh, this is more the, the political government thing. It's fascinating to me. And I was surprised that he gave a full hour towards it as well. I thought it was like, well, I didn't think he would do that. But to look back on it, I think it has like that second wind for me. I think that's why I disagree with Jacob a little bit, because that, that's the point where I was like, oh, wow, that, that now I'm really into it because I like the, uh, the the double narrative. Although for me, don't put the fusion and fission thing. I, I think you'd let your audience figure that out. I think that's brilliant to walk out and be like, why did he do black and white and cooler? And then someone's like, oh, because like, one of it's a different thing. One of it might be fiction, one of it might be fact. I quite like that audience conversation, but again, maybe he just needs to he needs to reiterate that, which is not a big deal. Like I'm just I'm just not complaining. But there's a lot of interesting choices, let's say.
0: Do you think that Nolan sees any of himself within Oppenheimer? I think especially Jack, because you mentioned how this could be read as like kind of a stance on modern Hollywood. I look at what defines modern Hollywood and one of the biggest films, maybe it's just because at my age at the time, it was really relevant was inception and what that did oh, wow. with visual effects and what that did with CGI and what that did with pushing the barriers of like what film can be as an art form. And then you see how those ideas have evolved now into work that I would say we're all pretty disappointed with, right? We, we're praising the fact that this film is getting back to filmmaking without um cgi and such like that i wonder if nolan sees and obviously like very different situations but, like i wonder if he sees this stance with Oppenheimer. like i did that i reinvented the form in a sense but also now i have to live with the fact that it's in people's hands that i cannot control and cannot use and it's hurting things i don't know i think that's an interesting comparison i just thought of that like i would definitely be interested possible in
3: parallel right because we're seeing you know, Oppenheimer is put, it's because, you know, this, this other view, these, um, but today, right? What was the Dark Knight under scrutiny for online? Is it possibly right wing conservative views? And he's kind of, that. Th- it's like, oh, could Nolan's legacy be tarnished because of this? Um, and so maybe there is just a parallel. I don't think he thinks of that. But if you're looking at, oh, that is kind of interesting. People have gone back and said, wait, and then obviously Oppenheimer kind of the, I, I, I don't care about no one's views, right? It is interesting, but maybe a little bit there. I think with Jack Luke, yeah, I think that third act, um, right? I, I do think, oh, it's incredibly well-made, but to me, it was just, it didn't work. So I think if it does work um, for you, it just, it's like, oh, this is great, this hour alone. But I think as in the full 3 I'm like, hmm, maybe it didn't. But yeah, the, yeah, um,
2: I can see that.
3: the scare of it too, it, it kind of goes into that, idea that this is from Oppenheimer's perspective because there is at first the film's taking this idea that there's no grounds that there could be a spy or that they're all you know selling off the info but then we find out his friend did exactly that right and but in Oppenheimer's head he was like no there's no way so that's what the film shows us oh there's kind of no way this isn't um because we do see his friend do it and then obviously they cut ties with him so it's not like he's guilty himself but it is uh, I do think that ties into this is Oppenheimer's view, not the objective outward. Here's how it happened, because um, they're always talking about this incident. Oh, the the incident, it was so bad, right, with his friend. Um, but yeah, I think the Red Scare stuff very interesting, and yeah, I I I, I agree there. Remember
1: the uh, the opening quote of the film: Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he
3: was chained to a rock and tortured for. Mm-hmm. A dream. yeah i mean he's the american prometheus and that's right that's what the oh. book's titled. that's and that's him um and just kind of through that it's he's tortured for it right and put yeah. uh, through the ring what, that's, whether what, it's, that,
1: that, that, that's what the whole film shows and, and, and yeah the ending especially like the last hour it's it's it's, it's, it's kind of weird because like the last hour is just people talking in two different rooms and yet it's the most riveting dialogue and- <laughs> yes yes uh, yeah. editing of, of Nolan's career, and, and I don't think anyone's mentioned this, but Jason Clark and Tony Goldwyn.
2: Yes, absolutely. yes, Jason Clark as well. Yeah, out of nowhere, absolutely incredible. Uh,
1: that that scene, I think, when um, they're talking about—I I, forget—but like the the the, the screen kind of goes brighter, like in Oppenheimer's head, as the the exchange sorts of heat uh, sort of heats up. It kind of parallels to what he saw when he was delivering that speech. Uh, in front of of people and then the the cheers would mute out and it would transform into sort of a... Yeah, the mental
3: recreation
1: of the bombing in his own head. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, my English is not great, but you get
2: what I mean. Uh, To answer your question, Carson, I don't think he's consciously like that because he'd have to have an ego the size of perhaps someone who's just made a film recently who doesn't go to the same church as Mark Wahlberg, but um, I'll leave that for people to, to guess. I do think subconsciously there's definitely a parallel ideology between a man, or not say just a man, but a person trapped within um, the limitations of his craft, which again, I think this film is inspiring to a person who is the first person to create a lineage of, of, um, of, uh, of work to pass on to other people that it wasn't there before. And I think you can see that, that, that cinematic parallel with Nolan, specifically with, with the, the Dark Knight in particular, but I also think it's interesting that that person is also then trapped within that of knowing it, because I think Oppenheimer never, never, um, uh, I think he never pub- published a paper again after after that. He, he did lectures, but he never published a paper. I think no, Nolan's very strongly tried to get away from the Dark Knight. I think if anyone, because I remember you, you said Max, like you, um, I think you, you said that the Dark Knight Rise was a, a very influential film within your, yeah, your your, your person. Oh, yeah. I remember going to that, and I remember it took him four years to make, and I know for a fact he didn't want to make it. I know that the the, the death of Ledger and him also knowing he had to go back to there with that film and try to touch upon The Dark Knight, I know f- multiple people told that he didn't want to make that film. He did it because he did a three-work deal with um, with, with Warner Brothers, which doesn't surprise me because now Warner Brothers like publishing barbie on the same day and then him working at universal is so petty it's 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 classic studio system warfare i love it but um it's interesting that he's always tried to get out of then and making inception after the dark Knight and knowing that your your own independent feature films and this, in terms of being original ip should i say is is arguably even more profitable is is quite a, a freeing um, thing and him to go back and have to finish that, regardless if he wanted to or not, he had to finish that trilogy, um, and then to step away and to do uh, Interstellar again, original IP, go back and then do Dunkirk, and so on and so forth. I think he's a person who's always going to be trapped within that merry-go-round of, well, it's not The Dark Knight, but The Dark Knight's nothing well, without Heat, and Heat is nothing without LA Takedown, you know. And I think you've got to look at that lineage of cinematic uh, prowess and understand that. You can't have ego connected to it. Because once you do, which I'm worried about Gerwig as well, once you have ego connected to it, you can never, ever, ever move on to anything else. I think he's done a brilliant job of accepting the fact that he made a cinematic effort that changed the uh, predicament of cinema at the time. I think he's he's always trying to chase that goal. I don't think he will probably ever do it again in terms of um, uh, narrative, but he'll definitely do it in craft. And I think he's doing what James Cameron couldn't be asked to do. And I don't, don't mean that necessarily is a na- nasty comment, but I do think that James Cameron after Avatar had the world at his feet with the cinematic prowess and could have done anything and has decided to live in a cave for fucking 10 years and do the same shit in New Zealand, which I just think is just an absolute waste. Whereas Nolan has constantly progressed. And you think that he may have gone back after Dunkirk I think that's a I think that's a progression going back to the basics, just changing linear. I think that's incredibly um, interesting to do. It's enriching. So I, I've got a lot of time for Nolan, although like a lot of people make joke that I don't. I think he's an incredible filmmaker, but I just I think he's he he unlike Oppenheimer has escaped that um, self fulfilling prophecy of I'm I'm trapped to this where one of one of the same thing. I think he's long gone of that. But I can I can I think he fully appreciates Oppenheimer's um, issue of never being ha- happened to do that and I will say I know because Max made a joke about it but to end your film at him looking at us breaking the fourth wall essentially and him we what was seeing inside his head of the world burning on fire is one of the most haunting last cinema shots I think I'll ever see and, and like Max said I won't I probably won't watch this film for a long time I, I came home and I was watching Walter Hill Supernova and I was like, I have to turn this off. I, c- I couldn't watch anything. I, I just couldn't. It, f- it felt detrimental to any other experience. It haunted me for at it, least it was brutal. <laughs> yeah. It's it 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 honestly brutal. More power to it. It's just imagine walking into Barbie it. after
3: that. I wouldn't. Glad uh, would, uh, uh, didn't. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I'm yeah, like, it, Barbie. It, it,
3: if I was gonna do them, I would have done Barbie first, even before I saw I this. You'd have
2: to. Yeah, I f- I'd feel very sorry for anyone who did it the other way around. <laughs> I think I imagine doing a double feature, and walking into Barbie and like having that freeing nature. I think it's, it's it's quite unfair on both of them to have them on the same day, though. I know people like joke about it. It's Barberheimer and stuff like that, but I think if you think about the tones, it's such sort of like a, 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 a you know up and down. It's it's it, I imagine it will, it, no speaking French. It'll fuck with your head. I do, I do think it will. I think it the pushed
3: them to the box higher. I think it Warner Brothers it backfired trying to crush Nolan. I think something about this, the two together, it gets on, you know, in pop culture. And I think, I think if these both open solo on weekends, it, I don't know if we'd see these numbers. Maybe with Barbie, I'm not sure about Oppenheimer.
1: I think Oppenheimer going to light out and it's going to do much better than Barbie because Barbie is getting that that hype right now, like massive, the like massive record breaking numbers, the highest grossing opening for a female director. The highest uh, non-sequel uh, um, uh, for Warner Brothers, I think. I'm just like, because I, I saw this in the morning. Uh, I think the, the highest grossing opening for a toy movie since Transformers, Dark of the Moon. So like it's getting all these records out, but at some point it's going to fizzle out. But because Oppenheimer, like especially IMAX 70mm, if you're looking at AMC, Regal, whatever, like Cineplex, all of the IMAX 70mm showtimes were sold out for the next yes. three to four weeks. So that movie is going to play for a considerable amount of time, and the people that are trying to desperately get tickets for the IMAX versions of Oppenheimer will wait uh, up until uh, <laughs> up until that um, that time. I think that movie's going to leg out. Um, Do you know quite Max? Quite the only thing
2: that the only thing that I I don't disagree with you. I think you're right. The only thing that would worry about Oppenheimer is that it's already getting feedback now from the Asian market yeah. where it's got yeah. certain religious. Like he quotes it while having sex, I think that that will royally yeah. fuck this film up, which is India, a shame India because it parts yes. of the film too. That took yeah. me
3: out of it. I was so like, oh my gosh! It also the it second very, time he- I think Max said the quote is once again used when the bomb is the fact that we've already heard the quote once. I think I think I, I, think it, I, think I, think I gonna, like that. To you, I'm
2: gonna be honest, yeah, I like <laughs> the quote. I get, I get it's that. interesting. He he predisposes it in a sensual ma- matter. And a destructive matter, where one is essentially giving life, and once it once is ending it. I think it was quite it was quite it's a George Lucas rhyming, wasn't it? It was brilliant. But um
3: how about putting those two in the room, and and she's looking in Blunt's face, and it's this exposing the affair. I thought that was so good. Of just um, I thought was
2: that, that was Kubrick, that had Kubrick written all over yes, it, was haunting. Yeah, yeah, it brilliant. was so.
3: Oh, it was. It was yeah. Horrible to film, brilliant.
2: but I'm sure, it, I'm sure it was brilliant on screen. Horrible to film, I imagine. Absolutely. Right, because there's
3: no CGI. Before. They were actually in the room. I bet a different film would green screen them in the middle.
1: Yeah, and I, and I don't think I, I, I forget, but like Emily Blunt, just incredible. Like I don't know if people yeah. mentioned specifically, like detail, but like Emily Blunt was just so good in this, and I, and I like how Nolan at the beginning. You know, she is in the room with him at, at the hearing, but we don't see her. And very slowly starts to reveal her in the background, cuts away from her. Same thing happens.
2: And sometimes you subconsciously spot it. And then at some point, there she is. He and does, he he does to, the same thing, um, Max. Yeah. He does the same thing with the other scientist who, who writes the FBI letter. He does the same thing when they're in the meeting, when, when uh, Robert Downey Jr. enters, when they're all talking around the circle. He's in the background blurred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we t- like pan yeah. around, he comes in. It's, it's, it, I noticed it first yeah. time as well. But I, I'll tell you what, when, when Emily Blunt switched, I was like, yes. I was I was like yeah. one of the most engaging things I've seen. I was like, yes, get them, Queen. Get them. It was so good to watch.
0: I love that. I think we're back in the era of classic Clappercast, where I come on and I talk about a film. And then afterwards, I'm like, yeah, maybe it was just five stars. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think you'll watch it again? What was that, Jack? Do you think you'll watch it again? Oh, I booked my ticket. I'm seeing it again today. I've booked oh, it while we were fuck. talking.
3: Wow! I'm seeing it Saturday again. I, I told a friend like six months ago, I'd see it with him. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And at first, first, you know, couple hours of after seeing it, I said, I don't want to watch it again. But now now I do.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'll say I wanted to watch it again before the podcast. I didn't get a chance because I'll be honest. I watched Barbie three times so far. But wow. I do want to see
2: Oppenheimer. Wow. <laughs> I love that you. I don't even know why I think that's a surprise. I'll give you that. Would you rather have Barbie two or Mamma Mia three? Be honest. Oh, Mamma Mia three. I
0: don't. I don't want a Barbie two. I think like I don't want. I. Th- I don't see what it could add. I think this ends fantastically. I hope so. I don't know what else. Yeah, Mamma Mia three, so. which is in production. Everyone, let's keep that in mind. The countdown, wow. keep it going. Um, it's no longer a production. There's a strike. Well, that's true. But I think they deserve to be paid, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, so am I. Uh, Does anyone have any final thoughts on Oppenheimer before we move on?
3: I'll I'll Uh, go back. I was thinking about it a while back when you were talking about, this is outside of the film, but one little tidbit of being at the Trinity site there today are still protesters talking about the nuclear radiation outside of it. So there is that. I, I don't, knock down the movie for not covering that, anything like that. I, I think it's, it's like, hey, research that yourself, definitely. But this is not that story. But I, I just wanted to add that little tidbit of even today, you saw people protesting um, to this day because I'm sure the radiation, right? We all know what radiation does, right? So, but yeah, just that one little
2: thing i thought it was interesting well, i think that's where me. you just have to
0: be clear on the focus that this is oppenheimer's story not the story of that because like this is not the story of everything about trinity and what happened there and like you can debate all you want about should that be included or not but like this is the story of oppenheimer it sticks to what oppenheimer is relevant for and it very clearly is like oppenheimer doesn't have a lot of involvement like very purposefully in a lot of the negative side effects that came from this project in a lot of senses um so i think like a lot of that you just kind of have to understand this is not the story of the atomic bomb. This is the story of Oppenheimer.
2: Yeah. I, I, I also do it's a classic.
0: To... Oh, sorry, Jack Luke. I no, was just no, going it... to
3: say, it's a classic. You murder the person off screen. It gives it more weight. The fact we don't see the bombing, um, but it's in his mind.
0: But you see the after you see the body, like you see a body, you see, yeah. they say very almost, As much as I
3: like that scene, I almost wondering if showing the body kind of, gets them down that corner of oh because it's almost going to um you know into japan i love that scene but i almost wonder if the body was one step too far to get people thinking about wait why didn't they talk about that but i don't know i i I think it's needed like i I, I don't know
0: again gonna be a little cynical but like i don't think everyone who goes to oppenheimer is aware of what happened with this after effects with the truth of what happened this is not just like oh an explosion like it's fucked and i think that this film needed to have something like that to explicitly say it's fucked even if you don't want to go the full distance with showing kirishita so the body does that.
2: yeah so i i liked it. i think it was needed That's a i good sort of think it, it it comes down to the issue of like and i compared to like the cameo i think there, there's an there's like an interest to show something like that but I think it actually takes away from the audience if you just don't give them exactly what they want, like a 10-second, 15-second cameo. I think you either confirm to show it all in a film about that or don't do it at all, because I think you you take a detachment away of what actually happened. I think one of the most haunting, horrifying moments of modern history um, to, to, uh, again, plague the rest of history as well. I think you either document it in its entirety or don't, And I think he, he probably wrestled with that a lot. And I think the idea to show, not, because again, like you said, Carson, he, he actually never witnesses that. So he doesn't know what actually goes on there. He only sees it through the actual uh, photographer after it's happened. But he, but he has the press conference, I believe, first. And that's when he's sort of like, it's his own mind telling him, this is what you've done to people. So it's not even a realization of the truth yet. I mean, and then he can't even look at it. Which I, which I thought was a, a, an imp- imperative, integral scene and just looking down, and it's like it's monstrous because you want to scream out, or you want to scream at him, like d- see what you've done. But he already knows in his head. I think he, he already knows about the bomb blast radius. I think there's all these things that he's just so surefire to have this done. You know, it's like the audio you know, saying, like you know, we, we were so quick to um, to do, but we never thought about about what and why. I think that's the perfect examination of it. He was so headstrong of wanting to get this built because it was his baby, and not quite understand until it's too late that I'm gonna we're gonna kill so many people here. But again, is that naivety of himself, or did he know that there's a lot to play here and a lot that Murphy brings to it? Because I think I'd, I'd be very interested on a second viewing and those questions where they, where it's brought to him. Do you really know what you're doing here, especially by his rabbi friend, um, who's actually named in the credits, isn't he as well like that? He's like. Um, do you really know what we're going to do here? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I do, yeah, but we need to get this before the Nazis do. It's always a, an issue fighting against something else. And when that fight's not there, even when they're having that, that conversation in the church, he's like still making demands for it. It's like, it'll be used and it'll never be used again. I think it's that moral code of him wanting to achieve something, but also not, at that time, truly willing to see what it's going to cost until it's too late. Um, I think it was it was it, that's probably the major theme of the film for me as well. I think it's really brought well, but again, you could probably argue because if you see, I, I know what you're talking about, guys. I know that someone on Twitter was like, "It's horrific that they didn't show that," but like, I mean, the film's three hours. Is if he's just going to show like a, a ten-second cutaway, I think that would even be more insensitive, ignorant, uh, and stubborn to even do that. Also, as well, not to deviate, but. If you want to see that and see it from perspective of what it to to the to the victim, go seek out Japanese cinema. There's there's features, uh, Catherine. You'll know two of them because you, 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 we spoke about them on Gems, I think, before. Integral um, aspects of to look to to look at that and to look at the actual fallout of it as well. Um, I think that's where you should probably go. Look at documentaries. we have got to forget this is cinema. And this is this is. An ideology of, of technically make believe. Let's go out and watch the documentary and educate rather than um, make accusations towards this, which is a film about something not necessarily very different, but a different linear line. That's what I probably would say anyway.
3: One last point to add with Jack Luke I think, too, they all came from Europe or were Jewish. So, you know, there's that line of we wish exactly. we could have used it against Germany. So I think to them, they're thinking, well, why are we still going through with this? But I I was in Korea over for nine months. They see it much differently, right? They probably didn't care about Germany and Korea. They very much cared about Japan. And I think that's where, but the point of if you're showing the Japanese, that doesn't have to do with Trinity site. It's out of their hands. So just to finish with that.
2: No, I I agree with you as well very quickly about um, that. It's interesting that the US Army, it's like, oh, we chose it. There's, def- there's definitely a government issue why they chose Oppenheimer. They, think they knew about his left-leaning, um, those, they knew he was Jewish. They knew that most people came from Hungary, who then would go against, like, after, after, the fall of, after the fall of Germany, would then become a communist nation, which this ultimately fights. There's definitely um, subtext, a subconscious momentum that is reinforcing the fact that perhaps there's a lot, there's a lot broader being spoken about, a lot more known than really, what the film is entailing as well, what these characters essentially know, because the fight is against the ultimate evil in Nazi Germany. But once Nazi Germany falls, it then has to become the Russians. They're the enemy, and then it becomes left-leaning issues. But really, the enemy is yourself, because ultimately they're going to use it and they're going to de- they're going to destroy themselves in, in, in the end. And the the thing, the big thing about responsibility is about taking accountability. And if you can't take accountability, you don't get responsibility. And, and I mean, then what do you do? You become you become a false prophet a God, and that's what the, again the undertones of what he was scared about what ultimately has become true. Aside from the, the the peace treaty of nuclear weapons after after the 60s, but again it's still a cold war. So it's interesting to look at that. But I think that's all the prowess of the screenplay. I think you can watch that the first time and not necessarily notice that. I'm glad you did because I think that is a is a conscious thing that he writes in there, and I think it's a conscious thing that the government sort of manipulated these people into into like fighting for. Very political, but. Well, I think that's going to do it for our
0: conversation on Oppenheimer. I think we obviously, I think all three of us, or all four of us, sorry, recommend that um, you check out both Barbie and Oppenheimer, two very, very good films. And it's, I think it's great to see the passion that cinema has had this week and really feeling like it's this collective community experience. Um, So for our question of the week, I thought, you know, we are loving cinema. We love these two films. Let's look forward to the rest of 2023 and say what films we're most excited for. As of now, again, things are changing daily as far as things being pushed back and delayed. Um, So if any of these get delayed, whatever. Um, But let's go around starting with you, Jacob. What 2023 release are you most
3: excited for for the rest of the year? The one that comes to mind, I think, is Fincher's The Killer. I'm very curious if it's, it's going to be right. Some people have seen it. Apparently it's pretty dark. I'm I'm very much that return to those subjects. So I'll go, I'll go with that, especially because I do think that will still come out. I don't see it getting pushed. Who knows though?
0: Hopefully not. (laughs) Max, what are you looking forward to?
1: Gareth Edwards, the creator, Uh, John David Washington. That film looks absolutely incredible. Uh, it only cost $86 million
2: to make. More of this, please. Jack? Oh, I, I saw the, the preview uh, trailer of the, um, of the creator, and I didn't, I didn't want to watch anything like that, and it looks incredible as well. That's a good choice. The Killers is a good choice. I want to see Michael Fassbender do something in a film, so that'd be interesting. I was going to say, like, the, the quintessential, I want to watch Doom Part 2, but truly, and I know this is going to be a cop-out, but I want to see The Killers of the Flower Moon with Scorsese because very much like Oppenheimer, that's a story about a, a government conspiracy about poisoning certain people who came into wealth. And those people happen to be Native Indians and Native Americans um, um, who, were, who were poisoned by their, their, their own government after being given land that they found oil on. So um, and that directed by Scorsese, who... It's going to be interesting how he deals with that, because he, he's dealt with a lot of subjects throughout his films. Uh, nothing quite like that. So and I, I, to see DiCaprio play an absolute bastard again is going to be good. Jesse Plemons is going to be good as well. De Niro. Allegedly Brendan Fraser's in it, but then I don't know if he's being cut out. That's what I've heard that, that the edit's been a monster to do. So I'm really That's looking forward false. to how he, how he deals with that. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Brendan Fraser's in
1: the film. That, that was he is? False yeah, yeah, that was
2: false. Because I, I had heard that there was a certain issue with, with what they were going to do about length. Because obviously with the, the Batgirl thing as well, which is sad, because he sounded like he had really good fun on that. It's interesting when people actually have fun on film, because you can get to see it in performance. So I'm looking forward to seeing because I haven't seen The Whale yet. I think I, think I spoke to you about it, cast, and I was like, I don't I don't know uh, if I want to watch, watch that. No. You I wouldn't? No. Wow. No. Aronofsky hit, guys, come on. But yeah, Kills it's, of the Flower yeah, Man. No
0: um okay for mine it's sad because up until yesterday i was like oh easy i get a gush about how excited i am for challengers and how the trailer is great and everything (laughs) and now i can't because it got delayed so i've been sent into like a spiral and i could pick napoleon i'm really excited for napoleon killers of Mm -hmm. the flower moon i'm excited for a lot of these films but like wonka i'm excited for obviously (sighs) um but i had to stick true to my heart and I'm gonna go Saw 10, which is gonna be easily the worst feature probably mentioned out of all of us here. But I cannot tell you how fucking excited I am to return to like good old classic Saw. It's opening a month earlier. It's gonna be opening the same weekend as Paw Patrol 2, which I love the first Paw Patrol. It's a thing on Clappercast. Go back and listen to our review. Like, can't, that's my Barbenheimer is gonna be that weekend. And I'm so fucking excited for Saw 10. So I just have to pick it. But like, no, I want to say Challengers, but I can't say Challengers, because now it's end of April 2024, um, and they're still playing the trailer before Barbie, and it was sad, because I was Do really excited
2: remember, for it. Do you remember when Jigsaw was coming out? I mean, you were like, it's going to be so good. We, we <laughs> oh. were so hyped for it on the Clevercast. Clav- we were like, it's going to be so good. We both went to watch it and did a podcast after, and we were like, yeah, this is, this is okay. That was interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting, wasn't it? It was a, a choice. Wrote, is it set between Saw 2 and 3, I've heard, as well? Is it true? Uh,
0: I think it's Saw 1 and 2, but it might be 2 and 3. I hope he Donny Donnie Wahlberg.
2: Is it, it is.
0: It to
1: the first Saw movie and a prequel to Woo! Saw. Oh,
0: I know he goes to Mexico to get surgery, and that's all I know about it, and I just yeah, cannot. He's
2: pulling a Steve McQueen, play. isn't it? Very interesting. <laughs>
0: um so now so go ahead you can vote on twitter and tell us your things if you have a film that's not mentioned and there's plenty of films not mentioned so go ahead and tell us what you're excited for at home now let's go to our rapid reviews this is our segment just anything you've seen old or new recently that you would like to just talk about for like a minute max you can go ahead and go first what have you seen recently i saw a film called coma from 1978
1: by michael Crichton with michael douglas uh jean uh and uh rip torn and richard widmark incredible Completely blindwashed it. I rented it off Google Play. Press play. Riveted. Uh, it is. It is about a. Um, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a conspiracy thriller. It's about a, a doctor um, that discovers that uh, the hospital she works in um, purposefully puts patients under a coma to. Uh, well, I'm not gonna reveal the, uh, the 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 meat of the plot, but she she believes that the clinic is purposely putting some patients into a a coma after some uh, some surgeries. And of course, it's a big conspiracy. Michael Douglas doesn't believe uh, doesn't believe her. Of course, he consistently gaslights her. The, her big boss, Richard Woodmark, absolutely incredible, uh, does the same thing. And then she starts to slowly reveal the conspiracy of the of the clinic. Never heard of it? Watched it. Just absolutely riveting. Uh, check this movie out: Coma, nineteen seventy eight from uh, from Michael Crichton, who also did uh, Westworld, and he wrote uh, Jurassic uh,
2: Jurassic Park. Nice,
0: Jack. What do you have for your rapid reviews?
2: Oh, I've watched some shit. Um, I've watched a few Walter Hill f- features. I've watched uh, <laughs> I watched Supernova. I watched 40 Hours, which was good. I watched some John Waters. I watched Polyester. I watched um, Cecil B. Demented, which, Carson, if you've not seen, you will love. Um, I watched uh, Serial Mom, which I didn't think I'd enjoy and I loved it. Uh, I've sort of been going back to things. I've been watching some absolute atrocities and some really interesting pieces of work. Hills of Ice 2 which is, um, I think, the epitome of dog shit, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got a few bits. i tell you what I've watched, and I've been watching it with my grandma. Um, I don't know if everyone remembers, but in 2002, there was a TV show called Taken. Um, it's like a 10-hour... Well, it's, it's 10, an hour and a half segments through 1944 till 2002 about the Roswell crash and about three intersecting characters, the Crawford, the Keys, and someone else, I forget, and about how they all sort of intertwine about um, being taken by aliens. And it, it's, it's famous for having um, Ellie Fanning, a, one of her first ever uh, being on screen, and, and her sister, Dakota, plays one of the main characters and narrates it. I remember watching it in 2002, which I don't even want to tell you how old I was, in a hotel room watching the finale. So I've been watching it again on, on YouTube. Um, definitely lesser quality. Definitely not the same atmosphere. But um, what they got away with in 2002 is also co-directed by Toby Hooper, who gets in some really good horror work as well. Produced by Spielberg, notoriously. But I was really impressed with. Uh, there's a certain episode where they, they go to Alaska, where they see uh, where they find someone lur- lurking in some woods, and I was like, that is so Toby Hooper. It's amazing. If anyone has it, go check it out. It's it's a long ride, but um, it's really really good. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, just bits and butts from from the, uh, the the eras of bygone. i
0: Jacob, what have you
3: seen recently? I recently revisited Alfred Hitchcock's *The Thirty-Nine Steps*, and I think, well, specifically, right, Cruz and McQuarrie are very much inspired by Hitchcock. And then we also this weekend got two tours, uh, but there, I just think there's some lessons out of that movie. Of it's an hour twenty-six minute. It has. I mean, we see the MacGuffins today still. So it has, you know, MacGuffin. It's got all these thrills. It's got a slight romance, but it does it so fast. And it's, I mean, I just think the lessons that can be learned is that you can do something that good shorter. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think they could learn to Hitchcock's editing. I think it might be his most underrated um, aspect to him because his movies usually his longer ones are two hours and his thrillers are usually around an hour and a half which is just but it has everything um, so that's that's what I've been watching recently
2: Isn't it one of two films that he remade as well that he doesn't remake 39 Steps twice and he did the same thing with uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much or maybe Sabotage
3: yeah, I, I'm not sure about 39 Steps but yeah the um, The Man Who Knew Too I- Much for sure
2: I think he remade it. There's a really poor British adaptation on TV. You're right. This. Yes.
3: Yeah. I watched the 1939, um, like the first one. He, yeah, I think that's, it's a
2: good, that's a classic one. Yeah. That's
0: a yes. That's a good yeah. One. If anyone wants to know the state of like. Uh, cinema and hitchcock if you go to the universal studios hollywood backlot tour they go past the bungalow where hitchcock like lived and worked whenever he was working on st- set and they always mention it and they've now stuck a giant minion statue right in the front lawn no, so just stop. think that's that's I the legacy like, there i don't believe it. <laughs> i would highly recommend you go because it's one of the best like camp experiences Be like there's hitchcock and that is just a giant yellow minion um, and i always laugh at it um, for, for me, I have two films I'm going to talk about quickly. Uh, I've been covering Outfest, which is an LGBTQ inspired festival in Los Angeles. Down Low, highly, highly, highly recommend. It is such a funny comedy with two career best performances from Zachary Quinto and Lucas Gage. Um, very, very fun, very much so enjoyed it. Um, I also saw Disney's Haunted Mansion, the one that's coming out next <gasps> week, I believe. Um, we're not covering it on the podcast, but I will say I had fun with it. Nothing great, but especially due to the cast... Um, which is just stacked from top to bottom i think i had a lot of fun with it um and i don't know it was good um definitely not as bad as disney can get disney can be pretty awful to sit through and this one was pretty enjoyable so that's a plus um (laughs) so that's gonna do it for today's episode of Clappercast. where can we find everyone on social media
3: jack Uh,
2: you can find me on twitter and letterboxd with the username at jack jacob
3: You can find me on Twitter at the username Jacob underscore R underscore Alan. Max?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. Threads, Blue Sky, Spoutable, Max from Quebec. Uh, Twitter is dead. It's going to be called X as of today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews letterbox. Just Carson Tamar. Thank you so much for sitting through this longer episode, but a very fun episode. We'll be back in two weeks when me and the good Ewan Gletto review Taylor Swift's documentary, Miss Americana um, and just a lot of fun stuff coming onto the podcast soon. So I look forward to seeing you all subscribe to our Patreon where we have our district nine review coming out next month. We have lady bird just dropped. Um, so a lot of fun stuff. So we'll see you then. Goodbye.